0: And good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, everyone, depending upon your location on this rotating globe, and welcome to another edition, live tonight, of The Other Side of Midnight, a show in a place where um, almost anything can happen, and it usually does, and as I've said a million times before, the things that used to be kind of confined to these hours of the pre-dawn darkness. By the way, we've uh, changed the clocks. We're now in uh, regular standard time. Daylight saving time ended uh, yesterday morning, or actually early this morning at 2 a.m. When, you know, those things that used to be confined to this time slot, they appear to have now been spread all around the dial and all around the clock, and they are happening 24-7. I mean, if you haven't lately looked, this planet is undergoing extraordinary changes, and the changes are accelerating, and a lot of the changes are not good, and uh, we're probably going to get into some of that tonight, because I'm, I'm, I'm of the growing opinion, based in part on our own research, that there are, and I'm using this term very generally, there are helping hands out there. When I say hoping, I'm meaning in an extraordinary, ironic sense. Um, There is something vying for the destiny of this planet, and all of them are not us. And as we go through the morning, that will become clearer and clearer. Um, We have an extraordinarily interesting conversation planned. But before we get to that, I do want to hit a couple of news items, some of which may be familiar to you. And some of which may be uh, unfamiliar. Item number one. First of all, if you're new to the show, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. You want to click on tonight's banner, "Stranger in a Strange Land," an academic, secret, hyperdimensional journey with our guest, Dr. Bruce Solheim. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page, to Dr. Solheim's guest page. Right under that, you will see. Fast links to items click on my name that will take you to my section of radio with pictures and item number one again is la palma in the canary islands an eruption that began in september and now we're in november and every day it goes up it goes down there are changes um in the last 24 hours and this is this is bad this could be very bad remember The reason we're watching La Palma is because in 1949, a major eruption, an earthquake split the island in two. And one half of it is kind of resting by a friction on the other half. And if there is a significant major earthquake, let's say six or seven, or if the ground swells too much like a souffle, and you may not know this, but volcanoes, uh, when they trap magma underground, the associated gases literally push up the ground and they swell like soufflés. Well, either one of these past a certain point could trigger the separation of part of the island from the other part of the island. And the part that is removed could slide ultimately of several hundred miles an hour into the Atlantic Ocean, creating a literal mega tsunami, which would not be good for everyone associated around the rim of the North Atlantic, as well as in the South Atlantic, the northern coasts of South America, the Caribbean islands, the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf Coast of the United States, Mesoamerica, Central America. In other words, it would be a very, very, very bad hair day. So we're watching La Palma very carefully, and you should have the seismic alerts uh, on your smartphone. So if something major happens, you will get an alert. Why? Because the mega tsunami, as it races across the Atlantic, particularly for the East Coast of the United States, could move inland when it grounds itself on the continental shelf by 20, 50, maybe even 60, 70 miles. And it would destroy everything in its path, that amount of water. We're talking billions of tons of water racing at several hundred miles an hour, six, 700 miles an hour. Now, the good news is if you hear that alert and you're on the East Coast, you have about nine hours of warning take your go bag, which you have packed, and get in the car and leave as fast as possible. Um, that is a worst case scenario. The probability of that occurring is very, very low. The consequences of it occurring are extraordinarily high. So you divide one into the other, or you multiply one by the other, the probability, and that gives you uh, how, how nervous you should be. In other words, you should have La Palma. On your smartphone and you should be watching very carefully for instance in the last 24 hours the island has swelled the ground has risen by 10 centimeters there are 2.54 uh, centimeters per inch you can do the calculation that's literally the ground rising by that amount that is detectable by current state-of-the-art gps So if you have a civilian GPS, since the military is no longer censoring ultra-high resolution, you, if you're in La Palma, actually will see that you are somewhat higher tonight than you were last night because the ground is swelling from underground pressures. So this is something we've been watching it now since September. We should not let it off our radar screens. Again, it's a small probability but the consequences could be absolutely catastrophic. So you need to pay attention. Item number two, we've been battling this global pandemic for almost two years now. And as you know, my position is that we are at war. Someone did this deliberately. They created the virus and they then distributed it. Uh, Everyone thinks it's China, I'm very, very skeptical because, frankly, if it was China, why would it have been delivered to Wuhan and killed unknown thousands of people right in the heartland of China? Now, you can say, okay, they just made a big mistake. It escaped from the lab, et cetera, et cetera. Well, those are all plausible scenarios. But let me lay one on you that I've talked about extensively. And that is that this was done from Someone outside of this planet, the breakaways are my, you know, uh, enemies of choice, and it was done to A, be a warning to China, which up until that time was a hidden secret client state of uh, the breakaways in this scenario, and number two, it was designed to infect as much of the Earth as possible. Why? Because of the long-term still almost completely unknown effects of COVID-19. I mean, there are so many conspiracy theories running around. It is difficult, if not impossible, for the average person, meaning someone with average resources who doesn't have a medical background, who does not know who to trust, you know, where to find accurate information, where to find objective science. In other words, most people it's almost impossible for them to judge the characters they see on stage because everybody has been tainted by an extraordinary propaganda campaign that based everything associated with the pandemic, starting with the fact that it was created. I mean, you can go through and we will in the coming weeks, we will potentially have a very significant program that I've been working on behind the scenes for some time with people that you can trust because they have been a major factor in international conventions against biological warfare. But it's taking us time to uh, set up such a program logistically. So in the meantime, every bit of news that comes out on COVID-19 is avidly devoured, avidly savaged, avidly attacked, avidly questioned, and all of this is legitimate, provided it's done according to some kind of scientific process. You know, knowing someone on the Internet who gives you a link and says, go here, and this person is telling the truth. I mean, that's almost less than useless. So that brings us to item number two. We now are facing a situation where a large number of people in in the number of hundreds of millions have been vaccinated by this extraordinary uh, campaign by multiple governments from China to Russia to the United States, uh, private corporations, government corporate uh, um, uh, cooperation to create in a record time a vaccine. And now we're encountering something which really has never occurred before in history, and that is a large group of people Because of the propaganda against the vaccines and against the reality of COVID-19, who refuse to take the vaccine and all kinds of associated conspiracy theories with what it will do to you. Everything from changing your DNA to implanting nanofibers and making you a transmitter of some kind of future slave state. I mean, really, someone should package this and sell it as a movie or a novel point of fact is, in the United States alone, over a quarter of a million people have now died of COVID-19. Under normal circumstances, that number of extraordinary catastrophic death would warn everyone in the larger population that unless they do something, ultimately they will catch this, and there is a finite, much larger probability than, than La Palma. That they will succumb that they will go to a hospital and they will die particularly if you're in certain very endangered age groups so we now have a situation where unless the vaccines are distributed widely this pandemic will never end people who think they're immune people who even get it they can get it again and again because nothing including natural immunity confers an immortality where you never succumb to it after you've had it once or even twice. The vaccines are not 100% effective against keeping you from catching this disease. Even if you're vaccinated with two doses of the Pfizer or the Merck vaccine, or one of the Johnson & Johnson, you can get it again. Those are called breakthrough cases. In other words, this virus, if it in fact was created, is specifically avoiding in a uncomfortably large percentage of situations the very idea of vaccination, which of course is not even talking about the propaganda around the concept of vaccinating someone against the pandemic disease. Into this conversation, which is incredibly polarized. It's incredibly blunt. It's incredibly propagandistic. It's impossible for the average person, again, to know who without a background is telling the truth on any side. There has been another factor entered. Pfizer has now developed, as well as Merck, a pill where if you find out from a test, an antigen test, that you have caught COVID-19, Up until now, unless you subscribe to really off the books medications like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, neither of which are effective. And again, uh, I cannot document why that's true, but it is true and you can go and do your own research. Now we have mainstream medical treatments post-contracting the disease, which in fact will save your life. The Merck um, Therapeutic, which was uh, published oh, about two, three weeks ago and has been in trial, uh, is about 50% successful if you're of a certain age group in keeping you out of the hospital or keeping you from dying. 50 that's like tossing a coin. Do you or don't you? Well, you can increase your odds, you know, so for those that don't want to take a vaccine and want to wait till they get COVID. If they find out early in the, in the first few days, they can then take the Merck pill and they have a 50, 50 chance of not having a severe case and going to the hospital and a much smaller possibility of actually dying. Past week Pfizer came out with their antiviral pill which turns out under clinical trials to be something like 89% successful, meaning that if you are tested, if you take an antigen test and you take the test and you are tested positive for COVID, in the first three days, if you take this regimen, you have an 89% chance of avoiding the hospital and of dying. Eighty nine percent. If you multiply that percentage by your natural immunity, the fact that if you contract it, if you're in a reasonable age group and not a, a senior citizen, the odds of you dying or contracting severe COVID are lower. You multiply these numbers together. You actually can really reduce the possibility that if you catch this, you can die. And that is a good thing. But you have to trust mainstream science to avail yourself of this potential therapeutic. And I know there are people out there who are listening to me who would rather take hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin than take a pill from a major pharmaceutical. Of course, those other two drugs are also made by major pharmaceutical companies. So, I'm not quite sure where people will land. My recommendation is do your research, think of the stakes, think of the probability, and just like with Palma De Palma, you multiply the two together. Personally, I believe that if you don't want to take the vaccine and you are availing yourself of these very cheap now, I mean, it costs 83 cents to take an anti, uh uh, a, a, you know, an antiviral test, an, an antibody test. I'm not talking about the PCR test. I'm talking about the ones you can pick up at the drugstore. 89 cents per test. If you test yourself once every three or four days, and if you find that your test is positive, and then you take this Pfizer COVID antiviral, you have an extraordinarily good chance of avoiding very severe disease or even dying and those are odds that seem reasonable all the other propaganda all the other you know noise around this situation i believe has been deliberately created so as to maximize the number of people on planet earth who actually develop COVID. As to why, well, then you have to look at the long-term effects, both known and unknown, of what happens when you get COVID, you survive, you recover, and then what? What was the ultimate objective behind creating COVID-19? That is a question that has to be answered, and that's a question that tonight no one has an answer to. But someday, they will. We just have to stick around long enough to find out what it is. Item number three. As you may or may not have noticed, uh, NASA has been scheduling and then rescheduling and then re-rescheduling two major space events uh, over the last several days. One has been the return of the Crew-2 From the spacex dragon spacecraft to the international space station to the earth they have been up there now several months and their um time has elapsed and they are destined to come home their watch having been served to be replaced by crew number three well the way this works because there's a time limit on how long spacecraft can remain within the rules parked at the space station it now turns out because of the, of the delay in sending up Crew 3, Crew 2 has to come home before Crew 3 can be sent up. And so all of that is going to take place on Monday, uh, Monday morning, uh, Monday afternoon, um, Tuesday, and then Wednesday. Uh, Monday, Crew 2 returns in the evening, and on Wednesday, Crew 3 will be launched in the evening on a Falcon 9 rocket. You can find everything, um, uh, you know, kind of up to date uh, on this situation by going to item number three in my radio with pictures. And again, you can reach that by connecting through the vast links under the banner at the top of the guest page. Item number four, Hubble. Remember Hubble? Our amazing telescope which has been in orbit for over 30 years looking to the visible edge of the known universe 13.7 billion light-years out well for the last month or so Hubble has been stuck in what's called safe mode because of some instrumentation problems with sequencing with ordering commands to and from the telescope remember this telescope is 31 years old and although some of the instruments and some of the hardware and some of the computers had been updated and replaced by previous shuttle missions, things now have really kind of aged. Uh, the last visit uh, to Hubble was many years ago, back during the last shuttle servicing mission, which was a, a couple of years before the shuttle itself was retired. So what NASA's doing, and you can read the story in item number four, they are turning on an instrument that has been idle on the telescope for 11 years in orbit, in the vacuum, circling the Earth every 90 minutes. And by turning that instrument on, as you'll read in the story, they're able to use its onboard computer processing memory to double check and reformat commands to the main telescope computer, which are not for some reason being accepted. In other words, NASA is trying to do what they have done best for almost 60 years, which is to make the best of a bad situation, to turn lemons into lemonade, to do long-distance repairs, oh, that the rest of the human condition could be uh, attacked and processed and solved so easily. Um, Let's see, is there anything else I should bring everyone up to speed on? Well, I, I guess not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce my guest of the evening, who has an extraordinary story to tell, with an ending still to be written, and then we're going to go to a break, and then we will launch into the substance of a very interesting Sunday night here on the other side of midnight in 2021. Um, My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Olav Solheim, who was born in Seattle, Washington, to Norwegian immigrant parents. He was the first person in his family to go to college. Uh, Bruce served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard, we're gonna have to ask about that, and later as a warrant officer helicopter pilot and is now a disabled veteran retired from the U.S. military. He has also worked as a defense contractor for Boeing, member of major Seattle company for five years. Bruce earned his Ph.D. in history from Bowling Green State University in 1993. He is currently a distinguished professor of history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. He was also a Fulbright professor and scholar in 2003 at the University of Tromso in northern Norway, a place I actually happen to know something about, and I'm sure that will come up as we have our conversation. Dr. Solheim has published 12 books and has written 10 plays, six of which have been produced. The Bronze Star won two awards, that was the name of one of them, from the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. The Epiphany, another one, was commissioned by the Kingdom of Norway and funded for a full production run with the original American cast. Dr. Solheim is also co-founder of Lockdown Theater, which has produced four stream plays online live with remote actors during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Bruce has lived, apart from his mainstream activities, a very interesting life. Now, it says here paranormal. You guys all know how I hate that term because it separates this reality from a series of other realities that we talk about extensively on this show. So he's lived this kind of double hyperdimensional life since the age of four, having experienced angels, demons, ghosts, cryptids, telepathy, psychokinesis, mediumship, and yes, alien contact. He has published a trilogy of paranormal books about his personal experiences, Timeless, Timeless Deja Vu, and Timeless Trinity, and most recently published a book about his contact with an ancient alien mystic titled Enzar, the progenitor. He has also published two comic books featuring an alien hybrid character named Snark, and will publish a new comic book called Dr. Jekyll Alien Hunter in 2022. Currently married to the love of his life, named Ginger, who is also it turns out a helicopter pilot licensed. They have four children and two grandsons. So without further ado, Bruce Solheim, welcome to the Other Side of Midnight.
1: <clears throat> well, thank you, Richard. That was that was
0: quite an introduction.
1: <laughs> I, I guess I have to try to live up to that.
0: <laughs> well, you got two and a half hours. Hey, we're we're just a few steps away from the bottom of the hour. And okay. as I have told my uh, guest many times, you know, we have breaks at the top of, and the bottom. If you need to go and get something, if your throat is parched, if you need to get rid of something, uh, we can take time. We can improvise. We can, uh, um, well, what's the word? Vamp. I think that's an ancient expression in the theater. We can vamp. So we got about a minute. Um, how did you decide to finally bring your double lives together in front of the uh, staff and collegial academics at Citrus College.
1: Well, that was a, uh, uh, just a long story short. Well, it's not that long of a story, but uh, my friend Gene, uh, who's also a Norwegian-American, we grew up together with Norwegian parents, uh, he came to me in a vision uh, about a month after he passed away and uh, spoke to me, interacted with me and told me it was time to start telling my stories and not to be afraid to do so. Cause I had been up to that point, afraid to do so. So that was October,
0: 2016.
1: Oh, and that's what pushed me to, to do it. And then I, I'd been collecting all my stories. I've written everything down. I just hadn't published it and talked to very few people about it. So, he is the one who nudged me, and uh, that's why I started writing the books. That's why I started speaking publicly and even teach a paranormal course. I know you don't like the term, but <laughs> I, actually, I, th- I I think that, it, it, you know, the paranormal is really normal. So that's the way I look at it. But, yeah, I know what you mean.
0: Well, if, but, I'm, if, if I was a CIA and I was trying to separate people from the larger reality, mm-hmm. I would create a term. That every time people hear it, they think, "Oh, that's that funny stuff. It's not something right. I should take seriously." So exactly. I really argue against the concept of para, because para mm-hmm. means not real, not really, mm-hmm. not 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 fully, you know. And if it's normal, it's simply a larger spectrum of normality that most people are not attuned to. I'll tell you what. Hold yeah. it there. We are mm-hmm. at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim. We're going to be talking about his successful fusion after many, many years of the secret double life looking at what I term hyperdimensional realities because, frankly, they appear to be the intrusion of a larger physics on a terrestrial three-dimensional frame. We're going to do that about his uh, day job which is teaching, among other things, American history. And boy, are we making some history at present, as you may have gleaned from the first uh, 25 minutes of my conversation at the opening of the show. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
2: 72 vaccines, your children will get um, as of right now before they're 18, and that number is doubling very quickly in the near future. And guys, the thing that bothered me so much is I had no idea back then in 98 that there were a lot of people talking about vaccines. But what I know now and what I learned in 2010, your listeners have to understand this. In 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. And let me say that again. Um, 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. This should be very eye-opening to anybody out there because what they're telling you that now is if you vaccinate your children, you have to deal with the consequences because they just told you that all vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. And most of that now, in 2018, Robert Kennedy Jr. and Big Tree put in the Health and Freedom of Information Act to have the safety studies released, okay? If your listeners don't know this, in 1986, Ronald Reagan passed the Vaccine Injury Act, which said the vaccine companies are exempt of any and all liability. But Reagan said, look, if we're going to give them blanket liability, we got to at least make them do safety studies every other year not every year but every other year so they sued to have those safety studies released and we've always heard that vaccines are safe and effective safe and effective safe and effective but when they got the report back it was a hundred percent empty not one single safety study has been done on any of the vaccines since 1986. this should be very 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 disturbing to all you guys and that's what began to wake me up as far as vaccines were my children back in 98 when the medical doctors couldn't give me the safety studies guys this is christopher key never forget it it's christ over christ is in me he's in my name never forget my last name It's key k-e-y God's given us the keys to unlock the doors that Satan never wanted unlocked, and we do it for our children. I so enjoyed the show tonight. The other side of the news is beyond fabulous.
0: And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of Midnight. As I said in the opening of the show tonight, it's really almost impossible for someone without extraordinary resources to know on the subject of almost anything who now to believe. do not agree with the guests who just uh, spoke from the other side of the news. However, I do believe in the Uh, First Amendment. I do believe that all points of view have a right to be heard. That's why we have on this network the other side of the news. And though I don't agree, I agree with the idea it needs to be heard. We're back now with our guest of the morning, Dr. Bruce Solheim. Uh, Bruce, have you encountered in academia as much of a polarization on this uh, concept of how do you know truth when you hear it or read it or see it as we have here on the show?
1: Yeah, uh, <clears throat> you know, we're pretty divided on our on our campus. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the traditional idea that you hear is that, you know, most you know politically speaking anyway, that professors or academe, academics are, uh, you know, predominantly liberal and so forth. And I I find that to be generally true, but not necessarily. And in terms of the vaccine, yes, we get, uh, in fact, we just have to put a, a, there was a petition that just came out from our faculty uh, asking for a mandatory uh, vaccine uh, on campus for all students and all staff, including faculty. And the administration hasn't, uh, hasn't done that yet, even though most of the community colleges in California and many of the universities have already mandated vaccines on campus, so it's uh, it, it is a polarizing issue it, it, uh, it I, I don't think it really should be but but it's turned out that way and uh, so i you know, there's it, if you ever go to a staff meeting with uh, faculty it's one of the most it, it can be very frustrating it can be very amusing because everybody's an expert you know, and everybody wants to be heard. And uh they just talk over each other, and there's you know it's it's it is frustrating, but sometimes it does it does make me laugh. It just people pontificate and and uh I just sit back and listen and
0: but in you know. situations where it's literally at some point a matter of life and death, mm-hmm. how is the human race you're an historian how has the human race dealt with this problem before? Or have we never had this problem before? Is this a product of social media, incredible democratization of all kinds of points of view, political players who have lots of money, who push certain agendas for nefarious reasons, who have devalued the very idea of objective, scientifically testable truth, who will attack any institution regardless of their background or credentials or credibility based on track record with information that most people even with the assistance of the internet have almost no capability of getting to the bottom in terms of researching who's real who's not real who's putting forth lies and who's trying to get them killed
1: no i uh... I agree. I tell my students when we study uh, the uh, Cold War, we talk about uh, propaganda and and, well, in World War II as as well. And I, I tell the students, you're going to be propagandized every single day of your life, all day long, as long as you're awake. And it could be from governments, our government, our own government, foreign governments, commercial advertisers, special interest groups and and the, the social media just makes it um uh, and you know the 24-hour news cycle just there it's un it, it's unrelenting the information flow and trying to discern you know especially for a young person trying to discern what could be the truth or the kernels of truth that are hidden in the uh in the twisting of information uh it it's a challenge for them it, i mean they have the whole world at their fingertips but yet they have you know they don't have any 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 feel of of what could and probably is the truth because they get bombarded constantly and it never it, it's just overwhelming it's overwhelming to them.
0: One and, of the uh, one of the yeah. shows that I'm trying to put together and I've had some logistical problems. Uh, there is a very well known epistemologist who agreed to come on the show and talk about you know epistemology is the science of how do we know what we know, mm-hmm. and. Unfortunately, as soon as he learned that we deal in a wide range of, I'm going to use the terrible term, paranormal material, (laughs) he kind of freaked out and he didn't want to come Mm -hmm. on until his book, a book on epistemology, had had Mm -hmm. a significant amount of time to find its audience because he felt that he would be uh, uh, blackballed by people in the community. Primarily he wanted to be fably reviewed by his peers, by other academics, and he felt that even appearing on the show would be a black mark. That's how much people, you know, are are, are kowtowing to the idea of name calling and association and reputation as opposed to, you know, looking at substance. So it's now been, I think, about six months since we opened Hailing Frequencies. And I think I'm getting him to where he's more comfortable. This is someone who has a major set of credentials in the field. You know, he's both involved in government agencies that every day have to figure out what's real and what's not. He's also um, at a a major uh, government center, which means he has that credibility with his peers. And I want to have him come on and spend about three hours talking about how do we figure this stuff out when most people even with the internet are hopelessly outmatched because no one is teaching how do we know what we know
1: right no it's 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 uh yeah for for young people well if you look back in our history you know the
0: it's not the just for young people i know people well, my yeah, it's, age
3: it's,
1: for,
0: who are privy to propaganda exactly it has nothing to do with age it has to do with predisposition i believe and i could be dead wrong about this but whether you're left brain or right brain whether you're more analytically uh inclined that you like data you like assembling information you like cross-checking one set of information against another set you look at sources in other words we don't teach students, certainly now, but we haven't for a very long time. How do you figure out the world? Because the world has asymptotically gotten a million times more complex, and it, as you just said, it comes at you twenty-four-seven, like trying to drink from Niagara Falls.
1: Yeah, no, I, I I agree. What I was going to say was that in, in colonial times in, in America, that it was uh, most people, and it's probably true around the world that most people stayed within a, uh, a 30 mile uh uh you know range of where where they were born and they and the only news they got were people coming through visitors on horseback or whatever or or if they had newspapers that could or flyers or that could be distributed and and now we have a, a situation where it the flow of information both true and untrue and partially true is is like you said is just flooding constantly, and uh, to try to develop a, a worldview, divide, you know, it, it's it, it is not just challenging for young people; it's for everybody. But you know, because I I teach primarily eighteen to twenty four year olds, although I get older students as well. <laughs> that's my big that's my big concern is to try to prepare them, and and it is extremely challenging. and uh, And then you know, people are very sensitive, uh, more than I've ever before and uh and and talking about academics you know i i had a a former student of mine i've been teaching at citrus for 24 years uh she is now a professor uh at a at a research college and doing very well and when i published my first book the timeless book um i gave a copy to her mother and she and her mother gave it to her and she said uh to pass on some information to me through her mother and her mother told me, uh, yeah, my daughter said, you've now committed academic suicide.
3: Mm. And,
1: and I, you know, I, I thought, wow. Okay. And, uh, I I know that that, there, there would be certain, if I wanted to change to different college or university, which I don't, uh, it would probably come up in my publications, you know, and, and it would be a challenge to, to, you know, if I was, you know, to certain certain colleges and universities, but, uh, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to retire, you know, in a couple of years or whatever. But, uh, so that's not a concern of mine, but, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, scientists who depend on funding, you know, uh, and they are very, very concerned about how far they'll stick their neck out, even though most of them, I think it was Dean Radin of the, uh, the chief scientist at IONS, Institute for Noetic Sciences, he said he did, they did a survey, and about 80% of the scientists and engineers and technicians that they um, surveyed said that they have had a, uh, uh, I'll use the word paranormal again, experience. And uh, so they have had them, they've had these experiences, but they can't acknowledge it publicly. And of course, that leaves us in a, in a bind, you know, in terms of credibility. And, uh, you know, I've had people when I shared more stuff on Facebook of what I'm doing, especially the Ansar stuff, uh, you know, this ancient alien mystic, there are people that attack me and say that I'm a fear monger and, you know, trying to spread disinformation or rumors or,
0: Oh, you should try maintaining publicly that the NASA has known (laughs) of ancient extraterrestrial ruins all over the solar system for almost as long as it's been an agency has been lying to the American people and see what happens to you then. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, no, it's, it, you know, there's, there's people that, that, that well, I, I guess there's professional debunker people too, but, but yeah, I, I, uh, it, it's, it's not easy for, for people in, in broadcasting or in, uh, academe, you know, to, to tell what, what they know, what they have experienced. And that's, that's what I've been doing and have been unafraid of doing since, uh, 2016.
0: See, I don't know how much you know about my background, but I used to have some of the similar problems you had up till 2016 in that I was mainstream. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I was Cronkite Science Advisor when we went to the moon. I I did read about that, yeah. I I actually played a really small but I thought significant role in the Apollo project itself. I was asked to write the section on the moon for the Grumman Aircraft Corporation uh, for press all over the world. Um, And Grumman, as you know, was the company, the aerospace company on Long Island, which built the lunar module, which landed uh, the astronauts uh, on the moon and returned them safely to lunar orbit. So in that press book, which was nominated for a uh, Aviation Space Writers Award, I was up against stiff competition, so I didn't win. But as everybody says at the Academy Awards, it's a tremendous honor to be nominated well, I was yes. nominated for the section on the moon. And, you know, uh, there is an academic doing a uh, a, um, a PhD paper on our coverage of Apollo. And I've had several conversations over the last couple of years with him. And it's going to be memorialized in his thesis to be turned into a commercial book. So, you know, at some point, history does tend to come out. It's just incredibly controversial at the time it's made and of course you as an historian know that full well um someday you and I might actually be part of some uh, future history if we if we just keep our heads down and keep doing what we're doing
1: yeah future vindication
0: <laughs> well to me it's not so much about vindication <clears throat> it's about moving the river i yeah. mean the reason that i have done all this research over, you know, 40 years now into extraterrestrial ruins, you know, which because I think it will change humanity. It will give yeah. the human race a connective glue to realize that we're all in this boat together. And there may be some folks out there, some bad guys who do not have our best interests at heart, and they're not going to arrive with spaceships and ray guns and bombing cities. They're going to do something much more disastrous they could Mm -hmm. give us a pandemic they could then take away all tools for information so nobody knows who to trust and they simply stand back and watch civilization on earth collapse of its own weight because we can't get ourselves out of the way to figure out what's truth and what's lies
1: more insidious
0: incredibly insidious which again makes me think that it's not aliens doing it. It's part of what I call the extended family, some of which are not here. They're out there. And that's a very, very long story. And we may bump up against it uh, later on in the morning. So let me let me go back. We've got about 10 minutes in this uh, half hour. Let me go back to the very beginning, before you were concerned about academia and I was concerned about NASA and credibility and all that. What happened at your grandmother's house 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle uh, many decades ago that almost led to you not being on the other side of midnight tonight.
1: Yeah, I, I was uh, visiting with uh, my brother and my mother and father, and we uh, that was the first time they returned to, to, uh, to Norway, which was when I was four years old and uh, since they immigrated in 1948 after the war. And we were staying with my grandmother on this remote island, and uh, there's no hospitals there. I got very, very sick. I could barely move my arms and legs. I couldn't move my head from side to side. My neck was totally stiff. I had a high fever. And uh, I was lying down in this little bed my grandmother had in her kitchen in this old farmhouse. And I remember the beams in the ceiling, you know, all, all the details of it. In fact, the house is still, my brother and I still own that house. Wow. It hasn't changed much <laughs> and uh th- my grandmother had this little bed because she had a bad leg and she you know would take naps there uh, on that little bed and i was lying there crying and my parents and my cousins next door and everybody were coming over and saying oh this is what happens but you know when you get polio you know that, and uh, all these terrible stories and or this is what happened and then you know your cousin died the next day and so i was i i was little but i understood this was terrible and I I drifted off to sleep somehow and everybody had left uh, the the kitchen. And when I woke up in this little bed, I saw a bright light, warm, bright light above me. And it wasn't the light in the ceiling or anything. It was, it was uh, an angelic form, you know, and uh, I felt like everything was going to be okay. I wasn't worried anymore. I felt fine. And I went back to sleep. And when I woke up, my mom and my grandmother were there and I got up and jumped around and I was totally fine. Wow. I I had been, I had been miraculously healed and I told them about the bright light and the feeling that there was somebody there, you know, some kind of what I would now describe as an angelic presence. And my mother and my grandmother both said it was, it was, uh, it was a, a miracle and that was my guardian angel that saved me. And, uh, So yeah, I was, I was fine. And it, and it was a miracle. And I think what that did is it opened a doorway for me. And, uh, I, I never looked back, you know, I just, I, I knew that there was more than what's what meets the eye directly, you know, in the, in the subjective reality that we have. And of course my mom was very psychic and her mom was psychic. So there's a, you know, there's a connection there. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of of this uh, this journey that I've been on, and uh, <clears throat> when I went to school, I you know a couple years later. This is back in the I, states. Yeah, I was back in in Seattle. I, I realized very quickly that I couldn't tell my teacher <clears throat> and the other students about my my miraculous experiences or my invisible playmates that were very real to me. They that I would call them imaginal, you know, because they were real to me and uh i oh, wait, got in trouble
0: had, you're you're what you're going
1: to school you're 6 now yeah 5 i remember it was in kindergarten and i was talking to the teacher and she said you know that isn't real you can't i don't want you to talk about that you're you know frightening people or whatever and i so told you're my talking
0: mom, about your friends that the other kids can't see and the right. teacher slaps you down metaphorically yes. and says you can't you know
1: <clears throat> i told my mom and she said uh, we know they're real but in some, you might not want to be talking to your teacher or other people wow. about it. So that kind of kept me. Oh, okay. There's how a certain-
0: we program from the earliest age. Yeah.
1: So I'm I I was being trained, you know, and uh, my mom acknowledged it. She knew that it was real and was real to her as well. So, but I had to learn how to deal with the outside world, which was not friendly to hearing about this.
0: Okay, so let's pause here. Yeah. What what kind yep. of what kind of beings at the age of five or six were you uh, talking to and seeing? Well,
1: uh, yeah, they're, I, I call them imaginal beings. I, I had names for them. Uh, one I called, and I wasn't very creative with names at the time, but I called them John and Johnny. Johnny was a little kid just like me, and uh, John was an older-looking man. Kind of uh, dark hair, a dark beard, and not very friendly, but he was very protective. So those are the two So these are the two human beings. One, they presented themselves as being human. Yeah, one much or older. Humanoid. Okay. Yep. And a protector, a very strong, silent type that wasn't very friendly, but always there kind of protecting me and Johnny, who was more like a kid like me, you know, my age, presented himself that way.
0: And, uh, no, th- wait, wait. You, you, you said that now twice. Are you, are you intimating or are you going to say that these were not really humans, that they were something or someone else?
1: Well, I, I, I believe that John was a, uh, the older. Was an extra, yeah, was
0: the extraterrestrial.
1: And I'm not sure about Johnny, but I'm pretty sure that, that John was an extraterrestrial that was protecting me.
0: Now, when you say protecting, how? Uh, I mean, well, these they, are non corporeal beings, I presume they didn't throw things across the room and attack no. you know burglars and stuff like that. So what do you mean by protecting you?
1: They were watching over me, and there was a there was an incident in
0: nineteen
1: sixty four
0: How old were you
1: i was I was six then ah. and uh in nineteen sixty four uh there was a uh, well. This is kind of a longer story.
0: Hey, we got so. time, and if we don't, oh, okay. yeah. if we don't so finish anyway, it was... now.
1: We'll finish it after the top of the hour. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, we lived on a on a uh, in Seattle on a on a uh, kind of a hilly area, and above our house was a Nike missile site. A Nike missile site. So that's always interesting. And the the people that lived in the house just above ours, I would go up there and they would babysit me occasionally. Well, the, the man there was, there was something wrong with him. He, I, even as a kid, I knew there was something wrong with him. Uh, he was, you know, doing weird things uh, like uh, hiding in closets and making neighborhood kids come and go into the dark closet with him. And I wouldn't do it because I there's something wrong.
0: Was he mentally ill or was he evil?
1: He, he was evil. Oh, yeah he was, as it turned out, he was, he was a child molester. Oh boy. So I, I was able to avoid him. He could give kids and tried to give me a little Dixie cup filled with what he said was Kool-Aid, but it wasn't, (laughs) it was uh, I know now that it was alcohol. I knew it was something wrong with it. It didn't smell like Kool-Aid, so I didn't drink it, but I uh, um, yeah. So I I, I had an intervention from a uh, what I call an extraterrestrial dean in 1964, who I now know uh, is my first uh, experience with and who I know now is Anzar. So he stepped in there and uh, told me I didn't have to go up to that house anymore and my parents would be fine with it. And uh, he presented himself. he was very tall and, uh, you know, like almost seven feet tall and kind of scary looking. He had this upside down teardrop shaped head and large slanted eyes. And I told him he looked like a monster, and he said, uh, I might look like a monster to you, but the man up in that house is the real monster, and you, I don't want you going up there anymore. So
0: this is a third <clears throat> being that appears in your life. Yeah. What happened to yeah. the older John, the protector?
1: Well, he was working with him, so, that, so Anzar wasn't going to be there all the time, so whenever I was outside, I would have John and Johnny. So, so they did uh, shifts? Why. No, it's just John was there.
0: Um, no, I, I mean, did they kind of spell each other 24-7? Someone was watching you. There was,
1: yeah, there was always somebody watching me. Yeah. Wow. Always somebody watching me. Did you ever ask why? I I have asked Anzar, and he said that we are connected. That's what he's told me. You and <laughs> that, he... we yeah, okay. that we are connected. Yeah, that we are connected. Yeah. So that's the uh the, the, yeah, the, these discoveries have have come over the years. You know, I knew this stuff had happened, but I didn't quite put it all together. And that was my first experience with with Anzar and then now I up to the the, the moment, you know, the, the, yesterday I took a spirit walk and talked to him and so I'm in communication with him. And uh yeah, and he's been helping me and guiding me and and giving me information about uh, you know, not that he calls them predictions; he calls them preparations for things
0: that uh, are likely to happen. So it's all in the branding, which <laughs> <laughs> is why I prefer the term <clears throat> hyperdimensional to paranormal.
1: Yeah, yeah because uh, you know, it, it's yeah, it, it, it is a problematic term. Uh, you know, I always say the paranormal is really normal, the supernatural is really natural, and and uh, it, I just had this. My life has been to me, this is this is normal, you know, to have people who are passed away talking to me and seeing things that other people don't see. You know, that that is that has been my life.
0: Tell you what, hold up okay there. It. Yep. We're, we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, who by day is a uh, mild mannered reporter. No, that, that that's another one mild matter professor at a mainstream college in Southern California. And by night, going back to the age of four on a little island north of the Arctic Circle where he almost died, he met someone, something, some other. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll return to Dr. Solheim an extraordinary journey when we do indeed return don't touch that dial the
4: other side Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, November 7th, 2021. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, who by day is a tenured professor of history, I believe American history, in Southern California. And the rest of his time is involved in exploring other dimensions and other beings other consciousness, and their interaction with what we kind of jokingly term reality. I guess, Bruce, the closest analogy would be, you know, the visible spectrum compared to the entire uh, electromagnetic spectrum far beyond infrared and far above ultraviolet where there's so much else going on that unless you have the right equipment, It goes right through you. You never see it. You don't feel it. You don't detect it. But if you are equipped with the right instrumentation, a whole universe, an unknown and unseen universe opens up. Would that be a fair analogy? Yeah,
1: I think I think that I think that very much is.
0: And, uh, you know, I
1: have to I have to I have to keep a, you know grounded in this, in this subject, I call it a subjective reality, uh, that, that we live day to day. And, uh, my, my wife, Ginger helps me with that because I'll, I'll have some extraordinary experience, uh, during one of my spirit walks that I take three or four times a week and I'll explain it to her and she'll say, Oh, that's really interesting. And then she says, but can you go help me in the yard? we got to do <laughs> some holes. And I, I sure. <clears throat> and she's totally supportive. Totally cool about it, but you know she grounds me, and that's I think that's a good thing. Um, yes, it it is that uh, you know people call it the, the thin veil or whatever between this reality and the next, or, or you know subjective reality and objective reality. Uh, it, it we catch glimpses of it, and sometimes you can you can connect with it, and that's what I've learned to do since 2016. i because before that it was always free, it was frequent but r- random because I didn't really have any management. I don't say control because I think that assumes too much. I'm going to say managing this connection, uh, something that I've been working on since Gene told me not to be afraid and tell my stories. So that's why I take these spirit walks and I, have gotten pretty good at it to make these connections. And um, yeah, I think that's a really good explanation because it's all around us all the time. It's just a matter of, are you tuning into it or not? And I'd have a certain preparation that I do. I call it putting my radar dish up and making myself available after I've protected Hmm. myself. And at that point I start receiving and uh, all my spirit walks uh, I record on my phone, little phone with a voice recorder. So whatever I hear, whatever I see, I record it because what I found when I started doing them, was that I didn't remember everything <laughs> because it was such an interesting experience. And I went into a semi-meditative state to make that connection. So I didn't remember everything. So I started recording it. And it's always surprising when I come home and do the transcript of what I had heard, what I'd seen and, and described. So these uh,
0: are recordings of you <clears throat> almost like a uh, captain's log. Yes, where you describe the experience, but on the phone, there's no separate input sound or video which affirms to people that, you know, let's say don't believe this stuff that you're having an objective, you know, reality experience.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 I'm not. You're, I, you know, like, for instance, when I hear Ansar speaking, it's not recorded on my phone, uh, whatever they call it, EVPs or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like that. So have you asked I, him why not? Uh, I haven't asked him that. I uh, oddly enough, I haven't asked that. I've just been I kind of have this routine. Make a I note.
0: Make a note. Next time you guys talk.
1: Ask him if he can actually.
0: uh Yeah. See, in certain secret societies, you know, I'm thinking of the Masons, you Mm -hmm. know, the initiate isn't revealed answers until he or she asks the question. Right. The fact that you have been inhibited to ask the obvious question. I mean, in every television show, the first thing the kid says is, well, why can't grandma see you or why can't, you know, my Mm -hmm. friend see you or, you know, because animals, dogs and cats. They interact with this world much more easily than humans. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I well, you know, uh, why is it, it an oh, sure? Or have we been programmed from very early not to experience or interact or acknowledge the existence of this larger spectrum?
1: Well I think yeah that that's that is part of our indoctrination is
0: to is to
1: either reject it, ignore it, or be so afraid of it that you know you, you don't want to uh, acknowledge it at all and i i've I've seen that with a lot of for instance i I got a, a message um oh, now I can't remember what it was it was something and I posted it on Facebook, and some of my colleagues got really upset at the school, you know, why, why are you posting this? (laughs) And,
0: uh, and then after I, oh, it's probably worse than being a QAnon supporter.
1: And then, and then, uh, something came to pass where they were directly affected. And they, I mean, they were chastising me for it and I'm not trying to make myself out to be a martyr. I'm just saying that that is, you know, kind of what happens when you glimpse what you're, you know, these things you're seeing. And what you 're hearing, and you share it with people, you run the risk of of people either overreacting or attacking and and that just comes with the with the territory in fact i i I was just asked uh, some a friend of ours family friend said oh uh, yeah they want uh, they have a friend that wants me to contact their grandmother who's deceased hmm. and i 've done this before i mean i've 've contacted people and and uh, gotten you know, some very good connections. Sometimes you get the connections, sometimes you don't. And I don't take money for it. I don't. You know, I know the people that do that are very talented, but I don't. I don't take money for it. I'll just do it as a favor, and I'll share that information. And they'll, <laughs> you know, like they're. It, it, if it's not 100% correct, they're they're. uh Oh well, you didn't get their middle name right, so I don't. I reject what you just told me, even though the other things were pretty spot on uh, hmm. that I told them. Well, so this is it,
0: back to the question, how do we know yeah. what we know? See, to yeah. me, if you're dealing with anyone in academia who should have at least a passing knowledge of science and scientific methodology, it doesn't matter what you're looking at. The process should be what determines whether you, quote, believe it. And, and one of my kind of you know, fundamentals is science is nothing if it's not prediction. You know, science all the time makes predictions based on models and you don't throw out the model unless you have a string of really bad predictions. And then, you know, they say, OK, there's something really wrong here. And you move to adjust the model, tinker with it, maybe throw it out, get a new model, think of something that you, you didn't think of before that you could test, you could predict before. In other words, there's a methodology why is it so hard to have that discussion with people that supposedly unlike the ordinary American or the ordinary German or the ordinary Taiwanese have a methodology for separating truth from fiction?
1: Yeah, it, it, it is it is a head scratcher
0: for sure. And
1: I I think that
0: uh So we're dealing as we are with current stuff in the real world now. With with a huge emotional co- co- coefficient that yeah. precludes rational discussion of process in favor of I like it or I hate it.
1: Once you bring emotion into it, then it, it's a whole new ballgame, and uh, it's very difficult to have those discussions. And I that's why I stopped sharing those kinds of things on Facebook, and uh, because people had such emotional reactions. It. There's a very small, I think I told you when we were talking uh, earlier in the week uh, about uh, this group that I belong to, the CIRO group, the Close Encounter Resource Organization. And I used to share all my spirit walk communication with the entire group. Well, then it became such, it caused such a commotion, such a, uh, you know, people flying off in different tangents, emotional tangents. So I I was told uh, or asked maybe you shouldn't share it with everybody. And this is a group of people who have reported being abducted or alien contact, you know, so it's a, you know, kind of a unique group and, uh, they couldn't, uh, handle it. So then I, I reminds me of that
0: great movie with Tom Cruise, a few good men.
1: Oh yeah. Remember (laughs) that great line? line? Yeah. Yeah, That's a
0: wonderful. You can't handle the truth. (laughs) Well, that encompasses a huge number of people. And the problem is they have no way to figure out the truth. I mean, tonight I was accused for the things that I believe and the things that I follow and the things that I give countenance to of being evil. Outright evil. I mean, I've never been called evil by anybody in my life. So that's how far we have journeyed down a very disturbing unknown road where something, and I'm really beginning to believe now that something has entered the nursery and is deliberately trying to force us into our separate corners, to force us apart, to divide and conquer. Because I don't see this as a strictly terrestrial phenomenology. And I mean that in many different dimensions.
1: Yeah, no, I, uh... I agree with you, and I'll I'll share this with you, that uh, when I'm on these spirit walks, Anzar always tells me, my friend Gene and the others that I speak to in the spirit world or the alien world, the quantum world, which I think are all really the same thing. The hyper-dimensional world. Yes, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm always told to keep love in your heart and always operate from a position of love, which sounds very simple. But trying to apply that in your everyday life is incredibly hard.
0: See, these accusations are not coming from a position of love. They're coming from a position of right. hate. Exactly. Fear and I, and, and hate. I, I have seen really, 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 really good people turned into pr- pr- purveyors of hate. And yeah. it's so wounding. It's so shattering because it's like, you know, that old cliche, love will prevail.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, no, no. Love has to be bounded by some kind of knowledge of the jungle you're in. And if you're unaware that you're in a jungle, you know, you are almost defenseless. Yeah. Okay. I I want to be a bit metonymic about this because obviously we're going to talk over many programs. Just get used to it, Bruce. You're going to (laughs) wind up being on the other side of midnight because your vision, your spectrum is desperately needed. But let's try to be metonymic. The second major encounter you had with the other was when this alien entity, Anzar, appears as part of a triumvirate to keep you safe, particularly from this mad, you know, child molester up on the hill. Mm -hmm. What was the next big encounter at a young age growing up with the other? Yeah. Uh
1: well if you're talking about the other in terms of
0: other dimensional beings, entities yeah. contact, you know, I mean terrestrial terms I think are a bit limiting.
1: Tell you the, you know, the the, the more dramatic highlight. So 1973.
0: Okay, so now we're 9 years in advance of of 1964.
1: Yeah, I'm fi- I'm 15 years old. I got it.
0: And my uh
1: my aunt it was a whole other interesting story in and of itself. She's a she was a Nazi in World War II, so that's that's a whole other story. We'll just leave that there. But
0: oh, that's a it, little it, one to drop into a conversation. I know. I wow, know I my very, aunt the Nazi.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, she was a uh, in the Gestapo in Oslo, in Norway during World War II, and my and that was my uh, dad's aunt
0: on your term. on your on your dad's side.
1: My dad's side, his younger sister oh. and his uh, his older brother, his older brother was a war hero. He was a convoy commander working with the British. So you have in the same family. And then my dad was in a labor camp. So, yeah, we were very much impacted by. by wow. the war. Of course, the
0: Nazis took over. Oh, they took over Norway. In fact, I saw Norway. a really incredibly interesting movie called Edge of Darkness with Errol Flynn mm-hmm. that really talks about the Norwegian invasion experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's uh, you know, we had a, a Nazi colonel living in our house in that farmhouse I was telling you oh about. He took over my. took over the living room as his headquarters or oh whatever my. when they were training. But, Talk uh, about up close and personal. Yeah, so I grew up with those stories and uh my, you know, my eldest brother died during the war cuz the Germans took you know all the medicine and everything. So he he didn't, you know, he was first born and he didn't
0: make it through the war.
1: But anyway, back to 1973. My Nazi aunt, okay. And, and <laughs> now, and not uncle. many people
0: can say that with a straight face, Bruce. Come on. I my, know my my
1: okay.
0: my Nazi aunt. Okay. So.
1: Yeah. And she uh, and my uncle were uh, were visiting, and when we were living in Seattle, and as uh, after it was Christmas Eve, I went to bed. I woke up, and uh, my aunt, my Nazi aunt, was in my doorway in my bedroom. Now it's weird that she would be there. And I thought, why is she there? And my, my cat had already jumped off the bed and he, he, he was uh, named tiger. He was a cute, big fat cat. Anyway, he jumps off the bed, wakes me up. There's my, what I think is my Nazi aunt in the doorway, but then her face kind of morphs into this not human looking face, I would say more like a reptilian looking face oh right
0: my. and there's
1: these little guys around around her or it, and the next thing I know i'm you know paralyzed i'm levitated and brought up through the uh uh the ceiling through the house and into a ship, so this would be a kind of a uh, a classic abduction, uh, although I call it a reunion. But anyway,
2: uh,
1: scenario, I'm up in a ship exam table, you know, the whole thing that people have heard about. And
0: you're 15,
1: 15 years old. Yeah. And uh, I can't move. So I'm just sitting there and there are lying there. And there's uh, the little guys, which I guess you would call the little grays are around me. And a, uh, a insectoid is by the by my head. And he's a I, I would say a cross between a praying mantis and a Jerusalem cricket. I was That's just way thinking
0: praying him. mantis. Yes. Yeah.
1: And so I call him Dr. Bug. And uh, he uh, I was obviously very frightened, but I was also very sedated. I felt kind of out of it. And uh, he was speaking to me telepathically. And I said, what?
0: What?" OK, let me let me interrupt. Yeah. Where's John and John and Anzar?
1: Yeah. They're nowhere to be found. They're nowhere to be found in this case.
0: That's not good.
1: Yeah, so that, but the, the thing is, I, I I asked him why am I here? And he says you're here for special processing. That's what he told me.
0: You're here for special processing. This is the mantoid.
1: Mhm. And he even he he didn't have a very good bedside manner, but he wasn't <laughs> trying to torture me. He wasn't trying to hurt me but the, there was like a device on my head. It was like a clamp or something. And, uh, he made the little grays take it off. Cause I said, Oh, this thing hurts, you know, my head. And he said, you know, he kind of admonished them, you know, take that off, you know, it's hurting him. So, uh, and, and then he told me, yeah, you're here for special processing. And I wanted to ask more questions about it. And, uh, he touched my forehead and then the next thing I know I'm like, floating or or dropping maybe kind of slowly into my bed and I'm back in the in the bed again.
3: Hmm. And that
1: that was in nineteen seventy three. And uh there there's a lot of other, you know, strange experiences like uh well shortly or, we have or time. around we have time. around that time. What was the what uh, was the
0: next thing after that?
1: Uh I could say the uh it was a uh a person in a coffin speaking to me. That was pretty interesting. Uh, it was an old family friend a Norwegian, uh, old Norwegian man. He had just died and I was at the, uh, the service with the open casket. It's my first open casket. Was this funeral, the same but. year? I think it was a year after. Okay. And, uh, I, uh, uh, was sitting, my dad was sitting between me and my mom and, uh, I was looking at the casket and thinking, this is really bizarre. I've never, you know, been to this kind of a thing before. Well, you've never
0: seen a dead person, never seen a dead person in a ceremony mm-hmm. with an open casket, right. et cetera.
1: It's pretty bizarre. I had seen a dead person, a, a little boy that had drowned uh, er, earlier in my life, but oh. uh, I hadn't been to like an open casket funeral. That, that was pretty shocking, too. But, and you're 16. Uh, yeah. So now I'm 16. I'm at this funeral. Uh, I, I suddenly hear the voice of the man. And I know it's the his voice. And uh, because it has this heavy Norwegian accent, it sounds just like him. And he says, uh, yeah, don't be afraid. I'm OK. You're going to be OK. That's what he wow. said in his heavy Norwegian accent. And I looked at my mom, but she's on the other side of my dad. right? Right. So I look at her and she just winks at me. She didn't say anything. Oh, she heard it, too? Yes but she didn't say it because my dad was right there. And my dad didn't like any of this stuff. Like when my mom and I would, would uh, do telepathy, we would do it with just regular playing cards. Uh, We'd do that in the living room from when I was, you know, even younger, probably seven or eight. I remember doing this and uh, I think she was training me is what she Oh, I know that's what she She was training me. And my dad would come in and say, what are you doing? And, you know, then he'd see what we were doing. He'd put up with it for a few minutes. And then when we got too many hits,
3: <laughs> uh, he'd
1: say, okay, put that away. Put that away. And he wasn't afraid of much. And like I said, he was in a, a, a Nazi camp. He was a, a fisherman in Alaska, you know, the deadliest catch kind of guy. Right. Right. Not afraid, you know, a carpenter, you know, tough guy. And, but he was, he did not like that kind of stuff.
0: Okay. That, let that, me, let me, let me pause me. you there because. This sounds like an extraordinary marriage, <laughs> yeah. I mean seriously, yeah, what kept it, them it, together if something so fundamental kept them apart yeah
1: it's uh I you know they they went through so much together during the war. And I think that's, you know, losing their first child and, you know, my dad being in the camp and then having that Nazi in the house. And so it was, I think that bonded them, even though they were very different kind of people. My mom was an artist. She was very psychic. She was a free thinker. She was a feminist, you know, and and my dad couldn't have been more old school, hmm. but they stayed together. They were married for 50 years.
0: Boy, and, talk uh, about opposites attract. Yeah yeah they they definitely so did they definitely he definitely were you know i don't want to get too personal here mhm it! of course i do <clears throat> <laughs> what kept them together cuz you know that he he must have respected her and vice versa in a yep. way that transcended the superficial differences
1: i you know i think my dad was very constrained he had been through so many hardships and had such hard jobs that he really enjoyed how flighty my mom was and
0: how artistic she
1: was. And so she had,
0: completed I, him in ways yes. he did
1: not want to acknowledge. Where he couldn't go, ah. yeah, where he felt like he couldn't go. And, but, and then my mom gave – and then my dad gave my mom some kind of structure, you know, more
0: – Anchored. You know,
1: kind of, yeah, more of an anchored thing. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay, um, so you're sitting there. That's what it was. You're sitting there in the front pew. Yep. You hear this voice. The guy's in the casket. You know it's not mm-hmm. – he's not a ventriloquist right and, and your mom gives he's you a definitely wink. dead <laughs> yeah. your mom gives you the wink and your dad is <laughs> yes. oblivious he doesn't he's, he's not on the right frequency he doesn't hear any of nope this. nope he does not hear it as far as i can tell yeah he did not
1: hear it and uh so that yeah that's that was when i was uh 16 or so and then uh when I was, let's see, an, another very remarkable experience. This one also related to uh, uh, other world entities, you know, extraterrestrials, I guess. Now, did you have
0: encounters with John and John and Enzar between these data points, these, these nodal points?
1: I, I didn't really, no. Not that I remember, anyway. I, I, so this I, is
0: I... kind of like a desert.
1: So these yeah, stick they... out, these stand out. Yeah. These things, these things stand out. And, and, uh, I, I did, I had a, an experience in 1977, which is, uh, it, it's good. It's an interesting one because it's a dual experience. I was with a friend of mine when it happened. And, um, uh, so what it was was a road trip. My, my friend, I, I call him, um, Ernie. That's not his real name, but I'll tell you why in a minute.
0: You're 19 uh, or
1: 20. I'm let's see 77, 19. Yeah. So, um, 18 or 19, right in there. And we're on a road trip after, after high school, and uh, we're going from Seattle to Salt Lake City to, uh, you know, Utah. And oh, wow, Utah what an
0: experience.
1: Las Vegas, L.A., and then back up
0: the coast. San road trips are wonderful.
1: Yeah, we were, you know, a couple of young guys. We had very little money, so we <laughs> didn't have money for hotels. So we Did you had, ever see you know,
0: Route 66?
1: Yes. That is what you were doing. <laughs> yes, it was, it was an adventure for sure. And the first night was an incredible adventure. We we uh, made it to the wilderness areas of uh, Idaho and uh, in a place called Black Pine Peak when it got dark. And we didn't have money for a hotel. We didn't budget for that. So we had to find a campground. We we got onto a forest road. We thought we were heading to a campground. We never found it. Ended up just parking on the side of this road by a clearing Out in the wilderness, you know, it's pitch black, right? So as soon as we stop and we, you know, we don't set up a tent, we just pull out our sleeping bags, put the seats down and just, you know, try to sleep in the car. Very uncomfortable. But right away, weird things started to happen. We started to hear noises. Uh, We thought there were people outside of the car. We saw weird lights. Like we thought at first, we thought maybe a car was coming towards us on the road, but then the lights were at a, at a, at a higher angle you know and uh and and from that and and this is the the really interesting part uh my i talked to my friend about this well okay i couldn't remember everything other than that there were people out i thought there were people outside of the car i felt like i was paralyzed i saw these strange lights heard these strange sounds so what i did is i did a uh hypnotic regression to try to help me remember
0: this is years and later I,
1: yes th- this was uh probably three years ago i did a hypnotic ah,
0: so it happened in 77 but it's not yeah. till 2019 20, 2020 20, well 2018 2019 that you regressed
1: yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I i i filled in the details and once i did that i got very excited so i called up my friend ernie and i said uh Ernie, do you remember? And I started – I didn't hit him right away with the, hey, I think this is a uh, extraterrestrial experience. <laughs> I just said uh, – kind of eased into it. I said, Ernie, do you remember that trip we took? Yeah, I remember the trip. Do you remember, you know, we pulled off the side of the road? and Yeah. And I said, what else do you remember? And he said, oh, I remember we thought there were people outside. I felt like I was paralyzed. There were the weird lights that we thought were a car, but it didn't seem right. And I said, uh, uh, I – did a, I, um, I did a regression, and I think it was an alien experience. In fact, uh, during the regression, the, uh, the Yvonne Smith, who was the uh, uh, person doing the hypnotherapy. Hey, well, uh, hold it
0: there. Yep. We're, we're at the bottom of the hour. Sure. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim. He's in the middle of an extraordinary experience that happened at about 19, hey, I say <clears> 19.5. <throat> He's in the middle of nowhere, on a road trip, with friends. And something happens. And what exactly that is, we'll get back to. You're on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. If you touch that dial now, you will never forgive yourselves. We shall return.
4: The Other Side of Midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Thought Radio at the Cutting Edge of Science and Thought. The Other Side is Midnight.com
0: And welcome back everyone on this Sunday night, November 7th, 2021. My guest this morning is American historian, professor, distinguished professor at a university in Southern California, uh, Dr. Bruce Solheim, and he's led an interesting dual life, mainstream academic, and then in his off time, and sometimes during his on time, and we'll get to that, he has interactions, and he has conscious memories augmented now by hypnotic regression, data in other words, of an extraordinary other kind of reality. And through his early life from four on, he's had experiences with interactions with what can only be said to be other types of conscious beings that are not here or not solely here, but somehow transcend dimensions. And, of course, that's almost like saying transcend time. And he's in the middle of a story where he and some friends on a road trip when they were teenagers, when he was 19 or so, parked for a night en route to an interesting place. And with his friends in a car, they all, or at least two of them so far, recall people in the middle of the night outside the vehicle and being paralyzed and bruce you can pick it up from there <laughs> okay so
1: uh during the hypnotic regression just i to fill this in uh the uh, uh yvonne smith who's conducting this and she's very good at it, she doesn't lead me you know to any conclusions she just kind of draws it out of me she uh, uh said okay so you're both in these sleeping bags, you're, having, you're seeing these things. What are you seeing? And I said, well, it, they don't look human. So I started to, to notice that these beings, out that these weren't people. These were something other than people, you know, other than regular human beings. And I, I was able to describe the lights better, that they were coming down on us instead of coming at us, you know, at a level like they were on a road. So, uh, And I also described some sounds and smells. I said, it was like a, the smell of rain, you know, that uh, ion smell or whatever, whatever you call that, that rain smell. And, um, and then she said something very interesting. She said in your subconscious, now go back, look at your friend, what is he doing? So I'm thinking, and I'm remembering, you know, what was hidden in my, in my subconscious. And I looked and Ernie was gone. He wasn't there. And uh, this was during the hypnotic regression. This is one of and your two friends. I, I only had one, just me and Ernie. Oh, just the two trip. of you. Okay, okay. Yeah, just the two of us. Yeah. Okay. So, I, uh, I, you know, as I'm uh, retrieving these memories, I oh, he's not there. And uh, so anyway, back to communicating with Ernie about this experience. I tell him, hey, I did this hypnotic regression. I think you were, I think you were abducted. I didn't say I was abducted because I wasn't. He was. And uh, that's what I suspected. And um, You were already um,
0: conditioned, prepared, yes.
1: whatever, but Ernie was not. <clears throat> er- Ernie, Ernie was not. So I told him that. And when I told him that, oh, my gosh, he got so mad at me. And he, by the way, he's also an academic. He's, he's a, a professor as well. So I, uh, uh, he said, if you would have told me that from the beginning, I never would. In fact, I don't want to talk to you. He just got really angry. And very upset, he did not want to accept it, and I said, "Well, I'm writing the story. I'm going to publish my, you know, these experiences I've had." He said, "Well, you better change my name because I don't want my name associated with this." And uh, yeah, I, I think we're done. I, I think you're, you know, you're being very tricky. And I said, "No, I didn't mean to be tricky. I just wanted to ease you into what I think happened, and I want to know, you know, what you can add to it." And he just cut me off. So i tried again to call him he wouldn't take my calls i tried to email him he wouldn't email me then finally he did email me back and he said something very bizarre he said you know what i do remember i do remember and i remember uh that uh i I was paralyzed and i remember that i was taken and i remember voices he said he didn't remember being in a ship or anything but he said "I, i remember voices Uh, you know these alien voices or whatever that said this one's a this one's a real squealer you think he'd never seen pincers before (laughs) the word word pincers right that's just you know spine chilling you know when you think about pincers sounds to me like large lobsters (laughs) so uh so he 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 said uh and then i said well i you know I emailed him back and I said, I, you know, I feel bad, you know, that you got upset. I didn't mean that, you know, I, I don't want this to harm our friendship. And we hadn't really been in communication too much anyway, but anyway, I, I didn't want to harm our friendship and I feel bad. And Are said, you at well, the
0: same college?
1: No. Okay. No, he's, he's in a different state. Yeah. So, uh, he, uh, he then emails me back the last time and he, and he says, the reason you feel bad is because you allowed your friend to be abducted. So here he puts it on me, and that's it. And I haven't heard from him. Oh, how interesting. I haven't heard from him since. Now, I told Yvonne this, and she said, oh, man, that's very common. When there's an experience where two people are involved, oftentimes one person will want to know the truth and find out what happened and will deal with it. And the other one will get very upset and usually uh, and not want to deal with it and will – Uh, you know, break up the friendship or the marriage or whatever. She said she's seen it happen so many times when there's a dual experience. And then kind of to cap this all off, I remembered I'd written some poetry uh, when I came home from that trip from 1977. And I I collected all my writing, all my short stories, all my poems. And I went back and I looked. And sure enough, I found it in my original, you know, handwriting on this, uh, you know, Yellowish piece of paper, uh, and I called the poem "I Sold Out to the Aliens." I wrote this when I came back from that trip, 1977, and in there I talk about, uh, you know, that I I talk about the fact that I know what's going on, but I'm not stopping it, and I don't mention Ernie's name or anything. But at the end of the poem, I talk about uh, my friends and family are under their pincers. I mentioned the mm. word pincers in the poem, so now I have this this artifact or this this documented poem in in the form of a poem from that experience that I would written kind of from my subconscious, you know, because I'd kind of hidden all this stuff. And but the poetry well, that's comes what art out. does; it reveals the subconscious, yeah. you know. Yes, at least that's, good that's, art. That's, that's what this poem did, and and so now I had that. I had Ernie telling me what he, you know thought happened and the fact that he shut it down and uh and and my both my uh uh conscious memories and my retrieved subconscious memories so of the experience so that was in 1977 <clears throat> and uh, so i just think that's you know it's fascinating because it has those different elements to it and uh let's see 1978 uh 78 was the year that i i joined the uh the army i joined on halloween 1978
0: oh my Uh, god yeah it's a great
1: time so i was 20 years old but that summer when is your birthday if i may ask uh september 3rd labor day labor day right around labor day every year so uh the summer of 78 uh it was a horrible summer i had uh been sent to i was i went to alaska to work my dad his old norwegian friend got me a job at a cannery I wasn't working in the cannery. I was working uh, as a carpenter in the uh, at the cannery complex, you know, and helping kind of a general helper. And I only stayed there for a month and then I quit. And, uh, oh, my dad was so mad at me because the guy, you know, got really mad at him, you know, saying, why did you recommend your son when he's just this big goofball? And so I come back to uh, to um, Seattle. And uh, my dad and mom go to Norway. They'd rented out their house, so now I have no place to live, and I don't have a job. So they thought you were safely working at the cannery. Yes, yes, that's exactly what they had planned. And then now it's all, you know, I was ruining their plans. They went to Norway anyway. I ended up uh, sleeping in my brother's garage because there's no other place to go. Well, I I have a girlfriend, but now she... uh... She decides that I, I you know, I, I was terrible to her. I was not nice. I was mean. And she broke up with me. So now I don't have a job. I'm living in my brother's garage. My girlfriend broke up with me. Uh, my brother's mad at me because he thinks I'm a freeloader. Right. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just in a very bad place. in How my much life. older
0: is your brother than you? Nine years older.
1: Oh, okay. So he's working as full time as a carpenter, you know, and he's,
0: it's, so his he's own almost house. 30 and you're 20.
1: Yeah. And uh, so in, in the middle of the night in the on this bare mattress and I'm I'm ready to uh, to, en- to end my life. I mean, I am just I figured that's it. So I was uh, I had a knife and I remember I and this is a horrible thing. And I know suicide is is a big, you know, it's a horrible problem and especially with veterans, you know. But anyway, I, I had this knife and I was ready. I was going to, you know, trying to build up the courage, I guess, to kill myself. And uh, all of a sudden, this this like uh, beam of, I, I I describe it as fire, but it's more like particles, like a particle beam coming up out of the garage floor through the ceiling of the garage. It just erupted. And it was very loud. And it was very intense. And I remember feeling the heat of it. And I had to like pinch myself, make sure I wasn't dreaming and that nope. So was it happened. was it was it a beam? Was it a yeah. cone? It was like it was like a, a a beam. I would it shaped like a tube, you know. But in in a you know particle. So you
0: so it looks like like uh, dust particles scattered in a laser. Yes, and what that, color that were they? I think there were multiple colors. It looked like fire
1: colors. To oh, me. like I mean, rainbows,
0: it, like twinkling. That's what it reminded me wow. of. Wow, kind of like. and and, like you know the
1: different colors in a fire and how big was the
0: cylinder extending from the concrete floor up to the roof yeah
1: and i would say the uh diameter was probably oh about a foot and a half maybe 18 inches or so maybe more maybe 24 inches okay and uh so this is erupting right and uh so these are my conscious memories of what happened. I I, I remember this, and I remember kind of a, a a low voice, like I I couldn't make out what they were saying, but it's like a low kind of guttural voice telling me something. Those are my conscious memories. So I did a uh, um, a hypnotic progression with Yvonne again.
0: Now who is and this Yvonne person, the therapist? She she is a uh, a
1: pretty much i mean she's a really well known hypnotherapist uh here in uh set up here in Southern california she's also the president of Ciro, the close and ah. resource organization and she's really well known in the UFO community the folks that say maybe you shouldn't talk about everything well <laughs> yeah i mean well there's just some of the people were complaining about me. So then she said, well, maybe you shouldn't share it with the whole group.
0: <laughs> yeah, mm. so I,
1: I was trying to be nice. I didn't want to cause her because they were giving her grief. So I said, OK, right. I don't want to cause you a problem. She's a very nice lady. But anyway, so, so yeah, is,
0: I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to be so metonymic, but is she a professional? No, no, is she a yes. therapist? Does she do this as a as a living? As, does she have clients? OK, so yes, she, she, has, so she yes. has the expertise to walk yes. carefully without leading the witness. Exactly.
1: Yeah, because, you know, that's you have to be very careful with with that, because otherwise you're putting ideas in people's heads and you want to draw out their subconscious, not build a, a, you know, a scenario for. Okay. (laughs) but uh, but anyway, so she uh, uh, you know, I have this hypnotic regression Uh, at that point. I um, I realized that I'm being taken up, eventually taken up in this beam through the ceiling. Of the garage, you know the rafters of the garage through, and the I remember the 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 ceiling or the roof opening up, and I could see the stars okay and I'm just taken up in this beam i don't go anywhere other than up into the you know above you know into the sky or into the night sky, and then i'm brought back down, and that's what i what I remember now I do remember some shadowy figures, but i don't have a lot of detail I, even with the regression i didn't have a lot of detail about Cause it because you didn't see them at the time right and uh so next thing you know I'm, I'm back down on this mattress the particle beam disappears and i see the knife you know on the side of my mattress and i have lost any inclination to want to kill myself i mean it was just a oh, well that's good yeah so i i consider it a, a rescue operation that's what I call it. I call it a rescue operation. Well, it's a operation.
0: very hands-off because they didn't communicate,
1: right? It was just yeah. kind of like a... Well, they did try, but I didn't quite understand what they were saying, and I don't remember. All alls I know is that I was taken out of that situation at the moment that I was, you know, going to do it. And uh, and, and I realized... And shown
0: the universe.
1: Into the night sky, the stars, I remember, the you twinkling were shown stars. shown
0: the universe.
1: Yeah. And I, I realized that... Uh, now, putting it all together, uh, I, I, in fact, I had even uh, blocked the idea that I was going to kill myself. I, I somehow, even though I had this memory, I didn't put it all together for some reason. It was totally blocked.
0: So you remembered and, you were in the garage with the beam on the mattress yeah. on the floor, but you didn't remember why you were poised at that moment with a knife. Yeah, I, I, I didn't put it all together, but now I realize. And oh, that came I, out in the regression?
1: It added to what I remembered and it made sense. Why do I have the knife? Oh. All the stuff that had happened to me, how I I was so depressed and, you know, had pissed off everybody that, that cared about me. And uh, so, yeah, it all it all made sense to me. And then it all came together. And I and so now I, I know that it was a it was a rescue. So it was an intervention. It was a, a rescue or
0: an intervention. very elegant. And uh,
1: so that. Yeah. So that's in, in 1978. And um,
0: so did you float back down on the mattress with a a decision to do something different?
1: Well, I yes. Uh, And it was I hadn't up to that point, I hadn't thought of joining the military. put it that way. I hadn't I had not thought about it. And from that point on, I realized I need to do something with my life. I needed some discipline. I needed some way to to have structure in my life. And I, I couldn't just rely on my parents anymore or my brother, you know, I was leaning too heavily on them or my girlfriend, for that matter, mm-hmm. uh, who was a very practical kind of girl. You know, I mean, she, you know, I was I was pretty much uh, out of control. And I I decided at that point that I was going to uh, I was going to join the military. Well, I thought I was going to join the Navy. I ended up joining the Army. But that's a whole other story. But uh, yeah, so that's what came out of it. And as it turned out, as 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 unpleasant as the military was, I did, you know, serve for six years and it did change my life for ultimately for the better, even though there was some terrible things that happened when I was in the military. Uh, it still I think is, it's been one of the most important decisions I'd ever made in my life. I don't know what would have happened had I not done that. And I think this experience, this rescue really showed me that I needed to make that decision.
0: Well, did it indirectly <clears throat> or maybe directly lead to you meeting your wife? Uh,
1: Ginger, I, I've been married four times, Richard. So, <laughs> so Ginger, I, I've been, uh, yeah, I had a, a pretty rough time trying to find somebody who was right for me and uh and, and Ginger is I yeah I've been married four times. I I sound like like uh, Elizabeth Taylor or Mickey Rooney or something, <laughs> you know. I don't I I think maybe they've been married more than many, you know, more times than me or Shabor or somebody like that. <laughs> but uh uh those references are kind of from a while ago, but I yeah. So I would say that uh all these experiences I have uh, that's why I call them I don't call them abductions. I call them reunions, I call them rescue operations. I I've, I know there are people that have had terrible experiences and, and I'm not saying these things are not traumatic, you know, because they can be. In fact, I didn't mention it. But in 1964, that experience, um, you know, even though it was ultimately a great thing, I was saved from a, a child, you know, molester. I for for two years, I had to go to a speech therapist. I I was speaking fine before. And after that, I had to go to a speech therapist. I was taken out of class every day to go and and learn how to put sentences together because I was stammering and stuttering so much. Mm. And of course, when you do that, you get teased by kids. So then you get more silent. Oh, mercilessly. So I, just, I was just I was not talking and not communicating. And and my parents didn't really understand. You know, my mom said, "Why don't you just just." say it you know and i i would get oh worse my. when i put pressure on oh and my. you know i mean god bless her she didn't know that you know that's not going to help but uh the speech therapy did help and now as my wife says i don't stop talking i'm just talking <laughs>
0: the and I, I talk you know I bruce i had a, i had exactly the same <laughs> problem <clears throat> so my antidote which was kind of self-imposed i i got a job at the planetarium in, in springfield Or I had to talk to the public every day. Oh, yeah. And now, of course, look what I'm doing. And, you know, I've been a NASA consultant. I've been network television, both on and off the air. I mean, look what I'm doing. And my prescription is something so simple. And it was simply I had to get myself out of the way. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I had to find something to fall in love with. Not someone, something. And I've been in love Ever since, and that conquered it. Yeah, oh, I I think that's that's great. There, I know
1: people who have had stammering and stuttering problems, and oh, was horrible, horrible. Figure you have to figure out a way, and it's still I mean it's still there. It's still there when I'm lecturing. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, I'll see it coming. I'll go wait, okay, <laughs> and then I'll quickly without missing a beat. Nobody will notice it except me, you know, or maybe somebody who also. So you just might change a word, that, you change an in inflection. Yeah, just just a little thing, and it just happens so fast now because I found shortcuts, you know, around that. Okay, when I hear it, can sense it coming. So then that's how I've I've adapted, and then
0: same here. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, you just have you have to do that, and and there's some people that they have it so bad that they can't do that, and I understand. I, you know, it's it's a terrible. Well, the
0: president thing. was hobbled by this, and. Yes. You know, he goes out of his way now with these kids that come to him because, of course, he's mm-hmm. made it very public. He says, I will give you my phone number. You call mm-hmm. me. I mean, what incredible experience for a kid to have the yep. private cell phone number of the President of the United States because suddenly you're, you know you're not alone.
1: Right, right. And that's, yeah, that's extremely important. Uh, You know, to know that there are other people who have dealt with this and figured out a way to deal with it. And and they have, uh, you know, they care about you. They care about the the shared experience that you that you had. So, yeah. So. uh, So that was, yeah, 1978. And then. um, In 19. I'm going to skip ahead to 1997, because this is where Ansar reintroduces himself. 1997.
0: So you I, don't I, you meet him for the first time in '64. Mm-hmm. He doesn't appear in your life until 1994, 1997. 97.
1: As far as I know. Now he could have been somewhere there, you know, guiding things, helping, and I'm just not aware of it. or That's still in my subconscious. Thirty plus years. Yeah.
0: Wow.
1: So, but in, in 1997, I have a vision, and and when I say a vision, just you know, so I can explain to your listeners what I mean. Actually, it's
0: 33 tetrahedral years.
1: Yeah. There you and go.
0: 33 is critical because it's part of the physics. Remember, yep. I'm, a, I'm a science guy. There's a yep. hyperdimensional, testable, teachable, measurable, predictable physics that mm-hmm. surrounds all this, which we have been incredibly kept from as part yep. of keeping us down on the farm. Or as Alex Jones yep. says, on the prison planet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And uh so 33
0: so, tetrahedral n- years later, this mm-hmm. <clears throat> alien guy stops mm-hmm. by. Tell us. Yeah, how. I,
1: I I have I have a vision. So in a vision I Where see, are you? What are you doing? I'm in Seattle. I'm uh living in uh I think the on the east on the uh by Lake Union, if you're familiar with Seattle. Got it well, in a uh, apartment building and I have a vision as I'm in my apartment my girlfriend at the time's not there and i see this entity and he's revolving in space i mean i i see it uh and he's kind of a proto-human he looks kind of proto-human he doesn't look like i saw him in 1964 uh when he looked more like a traditional i guess tall alien uh he looked like he's kind of proto-human with this robe and uh He's revolving in space, and he's telling me that he he doesn't call himself Ansari. He says so, he says I am the
0: progenitor. Hmm. I am the progenitor, and and for people that have forgotten as much as I have, define progenitor. The the one that starts everything. So like the 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 one
1: that uh, started. Like our human race would be the progenitor, mm. the one that begins, that starts things. That now, plants, is he the
0: one seed. of, or is he the guy? He calls himself the
1: progenitor, the progenitor, the first contact, mm. and uh, so he's. That's why I call him an ancient alien mystic, and uh, so he goes on to explain uh, this you know this idea of how uh how realities are connected like a, you know a, a, you're a science guy so you know this better than i do but you know that uh a black hole connects onto the into a an, another universe through a quasar and he's trying to explain all this to me i don't really understand it all because i'm i'm a historian not a not a scientist well person,
0: you've heard the concept of wormholes
1: yes exactly and the wormhole concept
0: of. comes from a Good old 3D model, you know, ancient ancient annelid worms, burrowing mm-hmm. tunnels underground, little little, mm-hmm. little tunnels. so a yep. wormhole in space-time is supposed to be a connecting point between one yep. point in 3D reality and another point, and it can be a million light years away, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like a tunneling shortcut in yep. another through another dimension between yep. two points in 3D. So he's explaining this to me, and he's.
1: Then he gets into this like this kind of Zen discussion. He says, "Remember, there, there is no uh, light without the dark. There's no hate without love. You know that, that he's, he's explaining all this stuff to me. Yeah, the polarities. And he, yeah, and then he says, uh, I am. I have. He talks about. I'm trying to remember the exact words. I don't have them memorized, but the uh, that the, the seed planted he talks about planting the seed in the earth that's what he's talking about and then he says the, that
0: the seed of what of of human, humanity human seed yeah. okay of humanity yeah genetics
1: genetic origins yeah. that's that's what i'm implying
0: he doesn't explain and things very well does he, he
1: he's he's kind of he's kind of cryptic and and
0: and kinda, kind of uh,
1: a little bit yeah <laughs> And uh, and then see, what else did he, he say? Must he must be said, an Emily uh,
0: Dickinson fan. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean by that,
1: right? An Emily Dickinson fan? Mm-hmm. Oh, her, her poetry?
0: Her po- Well, she had this famous poem, and there's a line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All these guys, they don't nail it on the head that you have to reach for it. Yeah. The initiate, the it. student, has to ask the
1: right Questions. Yeah, or ask the next question. I think that's mm-hmm. what. Who was that who said that? Theodore Sturgeon, one of my favorite science fiction. Oh, writers. good I mean, old
0: said... Ted. I had him on a cruise decades ago. Amazing yeah. guy. You know he wore yeah. little elfin booties. With the turn, turned up toes and a and a buckskin jacket. And, uh, oh wow! Pants. He looked like a big elf with his Van Dyke beard and all that. <laughs> Yeah, I I just, uh, I mean, since I was a teenager, I've loved,
1: of course, he wrote what, you know, some of my favorite original Star Trek episodes. Yes, yes. We're moving into break.
0: Oh, that's right. We have to do a break. Hey, hold up there, Bruce. We're at the top of the hour. We're basically coming up on uh, midnight here in the land of enchantment. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, who's taking us on a personal journey. At this point, I should bring in Rod Serling. You know, there's a signpost up ahead. You're no longer in just 3D. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is C. Hoagland. We shall
3: return.
0: And welcome back, everyone. It's the witching hour, the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment, here in the, in the high desert. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, and we're taking a journey in another set of dimensions and meeting beings that uh, you don't normally find on a bus or a train or in carpooling to work or even on a Zoom call. These are other, other somethings. And they've been interacting with Bruce Solheim most of his life, both in discernible ways and in ways that are beyond the edge, beyond the mist, beyond the veil. And he's alluded to that several times in this uh, conversation that, uh, Certain folks have not shown up, but that does not mean they have not been present and doing something. And finally, one of these entities that he first saw in 1964, who looked kind of like a classic E.T. alien, shows up again, but in a much more human form, saying he or it is the progenitor. And the story continues from there. Bruce, the floor is yours.
1: Yeah. So uh, the, the other thing I wanted to add from that 1997 experience is that he uh, then tells me that I am a seer and a long line of seers. He used the word seer, which is kind of interesting. So um, I, uh, you know, I've talked to people who are. Old psychics and whatever, and there's different. Some people they hear voices. Some people see things. Uh, some people see and hear things. I I tend to uh, when I make these connections. Sometimes I hear. Sometimes I see. Sometimes I hear and see. Sometimes I see uh, or feel images. That's the best way I can describe it. Feel the imagery of the message that they want to get through. I think they try in every possible way to make the, the connection. So anyway, he called me a, a, a seer. And so I, I drew a picture of him, right? I drew a picture of the progenitor. I wrote down everything he said. And I, I didn't share it with anybody. I just felt like, okay, this might be too much for my, uh, you know, my, my colleagues. Uh and, in uh, 2001, I think it was um, there was an anthropology professor at at Citrus, and uh, she.
0: Oh well, wait, wait, H- wait! I'm I'm a little confused at timelines. This yeah. guy appears in '97, but mm-hmm. you don't open up and come out of the closet, hyperdimensionally speaking, until 2016. That's true. What was the interaction with certain select people about your experiences like between? let's say 97 and 2016. Well, the
1: the first time I talked to anybody about it before I talked to anybody about it was, it wasn't until 2001 ah. and I, and I tried with a colleague of mine, she's an anthropology at professor. this conference. It, it was just at the school. We were in our oh, okay. offices. Yeah. Kind of like a communal office area with different partitions. You know, there wasn't, we didn't have separate offices, but uh, anyway, so I, I went up to her and I, I showed her the drawing I'd made of uh, the progenitor and I told told her what he had said and what he had told me. And I said, you know, he had this proto-human look. And, uh, so,
0: she's... wait, 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 wait. This sounds very McLuhan-esque. He, he, <laughs> no, seriously. He comes across as a proto-human
1: mm-hmm. and he
0: says, I'm the progenitor. Yeah. Well, medium is a message. He appeared like yeah. what he was. In other words, his visual... Appearance, his gestalt was mm-hmm. simpatico with the message. Yeah, and he he can look like
1: different things, which I, I'll explain too a uh, uh, a little bit later. But the I, I presented this to her, you know, and I said, "What do you think?" And I thought she'd be really open minded about it, right?
0: <laughs> and she, you were and so
1: naive, said, poor Bruce. Said,
0: he was so said, naive. <laughs> and you've been in academia how long at that point?
1: Uh, I'd been at Citrus for three years. i have been teaching, uh, college history for, uh, probably five years. No, more than that. Seven boy, years. Boy, did Part you, time. did you have a lot to learn?
0: Anyway, continue,
1: continue. <laughs> yeah. So I, I showed her and told her, and then, uh, she looked up at me. And she said, you're a pretty spacey dude, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I guess so and and then she just went on and she just ignored me, you know? So I said, "Okay, that's it. I'm not going to talk to anybody." This is, you know, I'm
0: So nothing scratched her anthropology bump to kind of want to know no the rest of the story. Oh, wow.
1: No. No.
0: You wonder she... how these people get into these professions that are supposed to ask questions cuz science is not supposed to know anything until you ask questions.
1: Yeah. I I just thought she'd be the, the right person to ask, you know, but it, I guess but she, she wasn't. So I was kept she a it, physical uh,
0: anthropologist or a cultural anthropologist? A physical
1: physical anthropologist. So she
0: dealt with bones and radiocarbon dates and the, the hands on yeah. stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well yeah. that's partially an explanation. Yeah. So uh
1: but as far as I knew, I thought that she uh, you know, was studied uh she also was i don't know other she was,
0: cultures origins of humanity
1: she 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 was of uh icelantic origin, so she was really interested in uh you know pagan rituals and pagan religions and things like that. so i just thought, okay well, I, okay yeah so maybe she'll be open to but no no she slammed the door right away boy and, and she was a very nice person, and I don't mean to disparage her, but that that was: oh, she's an honor we can me. disparage her role all we want tonight that 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 <laughs> discouraged me right away, and I said, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody else about so this. So
0: that was your so I, basic red flag: do not mm-hmm. ever come out of closet on this.
1: Yes, exactly, and uh,
0: negative so reinforcement then,
1: so then it it wasn't until uh yeah, the,
0: like your kindergarten well, teacher,
1: yeah. Wow. You yeah, have to to keep it hidden. Keep it hidden, keep it safe, right? Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. So, I in in 2016 as I explained that's when uh uh my friend Gene passed away. Talk and, about
0: Gene. Uh, Talk give us some background yeah. on Gene. Yeah, Gene
1: Gene uh was Norwegian American. His father uh, was from Norway. His uh, was an immigrant. Came over, I think, on the same boat, if I remember correctly, as my parents. They came over at the same time. Uh, and when you and, say boat, uh, we mean ship, big ship. A ship, yeah. The Stavanger Fjord, yeah. The Norwegian-American line, yeah. Uh-huh. In 1948, he came over, and he married a lady who was uh, the daughter of Norwegian immigrants. And they were from North Dakota or South Dakota, one of the Dakotas, right? And uh, so uh, he, he, we grew up together from little kids. We grew up together, so we were very close and stayed in connection. You know, he he became an actor. Uh, he was a very talented actor in the Seattle area. He's appeared in in some TV shows and stuff. And unfortunately, he developed uh, uh, cancer, lung cancer. Uh, even though he was not a smoker, I forgot the name of it, but, uh, and the type of cancer, but he developed it. And, um, uh, he passed away in, uh, September of, uh, 2016 and, uh, we'd even worked together on a play. I mean, we were planning to do more together, you know, work together in theater. And yeah, so he, he passed away. And a month later, I had a vision of him and, uh, he came to me and this was, I was here in the, in our house here in Southern California and I was kind of looking towards our walk-in closet and I saw him there. I saw Gene there. Oh, so this yep. was a conscious yes. daytime. Yep. Visual. Well, it, was, it was like early in the morning, but I was awake and he came to me. I could see him. It's kind of like a holographic image, you know, it wasn't totally, you know, solid, but. It uh, it was very real looking. And you could I see him, but you could see through him. Right, exactly. And I started communicating with him, and I, I said, well, uh, oh, it's great to see you, Gene. And I, I said the first thing I guess a lot of people would think of saying, you know, what's it like to be, you know, dead? <laughs> and he laughed, just like he did. <laughs> he laughed, and, and he said, uh, well, you know, I don't really feel dead. I mean, uh, we're talking, aren't we? So I'm, I can't be dead, right? <laughs> Good answer. So he's kind of- yeah, he's making a joke. And, you know, he was that kind of guy. He was the kind of guy that would walk into a room and just take over and, and, uh, not in a mean way, just in an entertaining way. He's a very entertaining guy, very funny. And he'd be a great guest. I mean, he would just, he'd just, you know, carry the conversation, a lot of laughter and fun. And, uh, anyway, so I, I, I said, well, Gene, this is, this is remarkable. And, and, uh, I, I said, what's it like where you are? And he said, uh, well, I can tell you this, there's there's no future, there's no past, it's all the eternal present, it's all together. That's what he told me. And, uh, and he said, uh, the other thing he said before he told me, you know, to not be afraid to tell my stories, he said, and I have to tell you, it's all true. That's what he told me, he said, it's all true. Hmm. Now, I wasn't quite sure at first what he meant, I just thought, you know, like, you mean, everything that I suspect, everything that's happened to me in my life, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a dream. It's not an illusion. I've been hiding it. I haven't talked to a lot of people about it. Uh, it's all true. So that's what I took it to mean. I confirmed that later with him. But anyway, this was this conversation. And, uh, and then he said, and by the way, the ti- it's time for you to tell your stories. Uh, it's time for you to tell your stories. Mm. Okay, Question. Yeah. Did,
0: did he tell you why it was time in 2016? He Well, the
1: only, only thing he, – he didn't tell me exactly why, although he said you have nothing to fear. that He said this – you can do it. You can do it, and it'll be fine. See, it'll, it'll work see, out.
0: from our work, our research, I can tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. where this – see, science is about correlations. Yeah. It's yeah. a process. It's not about belief. It's about a process. If yeah. you apply the process, as my friend Stan Tennant said, if you turn the crank and real stuff comes out, it doesn't matter how weird the real stuff is, it's real. So mm-hmm. the reason it was 2016 is because the uh, the academics in the 40s, when they were putting together the Mayan calendar, they got it wrong. It wasn't 2012, which was the transition date. It was 2016. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with alignments, you know, galactic center, solar system, Earth, you know, uh, solstices, all that. It's all about geometry at the 3D level. And the geometry determines resonance patterns. And so the reason we got Trump, the reason your friend said, Gene said, it's time, is because 2016 was the transition date to the next cycle of the 26,000-year processional cycle, which has determined the, uh, you know, the, uh, um, uh, what do they call those in, in India? The uh, Vedic cycles, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's again, it's part of this resonance hyperdimensional torsion field physics. So the reason he said without telling you why it's time is because according to the physics, it was and is time. Well, that makes sense, you know, because
1: it really did. It really did open everything up. And uh, we can go
0: back to, by the way, the New Testament. Remember when uh, Mm -hmm. when Christ is asked about, uh, you know, saying certain things. And he talks about throwing seed on barren ground. Mm-hmm. If you if you reveal certain things too soon, when people aren't ready, when the physics is not ready, it's like trying to surf when there's no surf. Right. You surf when surf is up. Well, surf is up. Look around the planet. Look at what's going mm-hmm. on. Everything is happening now because yep. it's time. Yep. Yep.
1: No, I, I, you know, I, I totally agree with you, and that's that makes sense. And uh, the the other thing he did, he even gave me the title of the book. He said you should call it "Timeless." Mm. He said because we are timeless. That's when he he explained, you know, the past and the present, or uh, that everything is connected. And uh, so that's when I started, okay, and I started compiling all the stories that I had written, kept hidden. And uh remembered other things and just came out with my first timeless book. But even then I was just putting my toe in the water because I didn't share kind of self edited some of the more I didn't talk about aliens, for instance, at all in the first book. When did you write the first one? Uh, I think it was two thousand it took me till 2018, 2000 – yeah, I think it was oh, a my year God. and a half later. Yeah. You know, about a year we're, and a half we're, later.
0: we're 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 Well past 1947, we're into Star Mm -hmm. Trek, Star Wars, you Mm -hmm. know, the the uh, MC universe. Why didn't you mention aliens in the first book? (laughs) Uh,
1: Because I was still afraid a little bit. I was still afraid of going too far.
0: Plus, I I, don't know. But aliens are kind of the coin of the realm. I know. I know. Hell, even NASA was talking about them back in 1960. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, 60, 59, 60, and now Bill Nelson, the current administrator, said the other day at the University of Virginia, Center for Politics, you can't go more mainstream squeaky clean than that. That's true. He basically said aliens are here. Yeah. So what inhibited you? Your friend Gene is probably not very happy. Well, he pushed me, but I resisted, and Hmm. I
1: just – I came out with the first book just with – you know, my ghost experiences, demonic stuff, angelic stuff, you know, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the second book, I, I didn't know I was gonna write a trilogy. I, <laughs> that I didn't know. It just kept happening. I I think he kept giving me nudges. Not just him, but Anzar I think was giving me nudges too. And uh I uh uh I came out with the second book which where I did mention uh Alien Contact. I think that's where I first mentioned uh the the progenitor. And then the third book the trinity uh timeless trinity i I let it all out. I didn't hold anything back and uh so that's that was kind of the the progression and uh and it was in i think two thousand and eighteen that I started my spirit walks three or four times a week, and I've been doing them ever since so for the last three years I've been doing these spirit walks and being in in uh and regular contact with, with Anzar. But I, well, I I figured out in 2018 that the progenitor, he finally told me his name was Anzar. And then that's when I found out he was the one from 1964. Oh, how so did he tell you? I, I, I asked him. Oh, I you asked it. the question. Wow. I did ask the question. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to connect the dots, you know, but uh, yeah. So it, it, that has yeah you're right in 2016 the the door opened very very wide for me and i i lost some of my fear although not all of it and and kind of my way into this um into this these public you know i didn't like i said i didn't know it was going to be a trilogy and it got i revealed more and more with each with each one and also in 2018 uh that's when i started teaching the the class uh not my you know. For for community ed, not for credit, but a night class. I called it Paranormal Personal History. And my first time I offered it to the community, we had 35 students that signed up for it. I was blown away. Hmm. And I learned something. Glendora were,
0: is a presumably small town. Yeah,
1: about 50,000 people. And uh, I had 35 students ranging in age from 18 to 80. Uh all different races, ethnicities, wow. you know, gender, and so forth. And um, I
0: learned very and, quickly. And this I, was done under the auspices of the college. Yes. Nobody was more surprised than me. Okay. They, okay. Uh, stop there. Stop, stop, stop. <laughs> Given that we've discussed <laughs> the resistance of academe to any really important new idea, how the hell did you <clears throat> sell it to the college? Take us through that's, the
1: steps. Yeah. I just, I proposed it. To the uh, uh, the Dean of continuing education and uh, I kind of got a, a not a rejection but kind of a lukewarm response and they said, okay write it up the, the lesson plan or the you know the, the description and the catalog description and uh, we'll put it through and it has to be approved by the Board of trustees
0: unanimously the, or a majority vote.
1: Well, I you know there's 5 on the board so 3 out of 5. So that that's okay. how they pass anything. Okay. And and so I uh suspected okay, I'm going to give it a shot. I don't think they're going to approve it, but they <laughs> but they did. I don't know if it was a of <laughs> little approval. face Jean <laughs> and said they, it was time <clears> and <throat> they did and they did approve it and uh that first class there were 35 people and I I had lesson plans, you know, I was going to do a lecture, I was going to have guest speakers. I was going to we were going to do experiments, you know, just little little experiments, uh, you know, for each class and uh, and and sharing. Well, what I realized the first night and is actually Ginger was in the class with me. She wanted to attend the class Mm. and she she told me uh, right away. She said, these people want to tell their stories. They're light years ahead
0: of where you think they are.
1: Yeah, they they are ready and they need to tell their stories. That's why you're here. That's the main reason you're here. And you're offering a place for them to do so where, where they will be accepted, they'll be listened to, and they won't be ridiculed. Classic That's-
0: military information. As soon as you make contact with the enemy,
1: <laughs> all battle
0: plans go by the wayside and you improvise. Yep.
1: yep. So then I, I figured it out. I made, you know, half the time was people relating their experiences
0: and there were 35
1: of them. So, you know, they couldn't all do it every time, No, but they would take turns. And then I would take some of the things they talked about. And then I would have like a, about, you know, uh, uh, maybe mediumship or I'll talk about apparitions and the theories behind it and, you know, different things. And then we'd have a guest speaker sometimes. And I had, uh, like I mentioned, uh, um, uh, uh oh what's his name from IONS? now I forgot his name. jeez, how could I forget his name uh dean Radin. so he was he was our first guest speaker oh yeah uh, Dean's been on the show several times, yeah, yeah, he's a cool guy and uh high powered lecture, you know for my students, but they still got a lot out of it. um I had a member of the clergy uh speak, and he, he did one of my favorite quotes he said uh if if God isn't paranormal who, who <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. I thought that was great. Well, and then, he's, he's uh, the first extraterrestrial being. Yeah, and and then I had a magician, professional magician. He's uh, been in magic for like 50 years. And you mean a like a pen of, and Teller type? He's uh, he's more of a traditional oh magician. Oh, yeah. a magic castle. Yeah, magic castle type guy, and okay. he he doesn't talk during. He's he calls himself the. Uh, his name is Dale Salwack, and he's called the. Uh, the gentleman of magic. He always has the, mm. you know, the tuxedo. He doesn't talk
0: at all. So does he have he, a cape, red line cape, like Mandrake? Remember Mandrake, the magician? He, yeah, I do remember Mandrake. No,
1: he doesn't. He doesn't have a red line oh, cape, darn. but he does have the the tuxedo. So mm. he's very formal, formal attire. And uh he came in with a couple of his uh student magicians. They put on a great show. And then we asked questions about, you know, is there, do magicians use something beyond just sleight of hand? Is there, you
0: know, another dimension to it? Oh, I had this argument with a very dear friend of mine who was a hard scientist, physicist Mm -hmm. in a cab going up Fifth Avenue one evening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I argued with him that real magicians mix the stage stuff with real stuff. And he got so angry with me. This is back in the 70s.
1: Yeah. No, that's exactly that, you know, and he, he said yes. And I said, are there some magicians that are kind of on the darker side, you know? And he said, yes, mm. there are those too. He doesn't really associate with them, but who've yeah, there are a, those.
0: Who made a deal? Some, some so, kind of... So special... they can be more proficient.
1: Yeah, and more amazing. Huh.
0: I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. More proficient, uh... yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I... The classic deal with the devil.
0: Yep. Wow. Uh
1: and then let's see, who else? Power we had, will go uh, to
0: anybody's head. Wow. Okay.
1: And yeah, then we had uh, you know, psychic well, we had a couple of psychics taking the class, which was pretty cool. Uh but then we had a a a psychic come in and, and we did uh, uh some investigations on campus. We found out that there is the campus is very uh haunted, which was interesting. Uh I I, I got some Citrus uh,
0: College is haunted? Oh yes. What did it used and to
1: be? It well, who knows what? It, I know there was farmland there before, and then of course. Before well, that's then, where it
0: got a was. citrus, Southern California yeah.
1: oranges? You know, kind of like yep. Pasadena. Yeah, and then of course Native Americans before that, and so it's been uh, there have been people here on where that plot of hmm. land is for a very very long time. So then I
0: thought I'm going to do. Some by the research. way, the yeah. the the physics, the hyperdimensional physics, mm-hmm. it's very dependent on latitude and longitude because mm-hmm. you're on a rotating sphere rotation is a key part of this
3: so mm-hmm.
0: where it's physically located could have an ancient ancient connection to the geophysics of the planet itself in a hyperdimensional realm
1: yeah well that that makes sense especially well not just for citrus but where i do my spirit walk i always conduct my mm. spirit walk in a certain location ah that It's right by a wash that goes up into what we call Glendora Mountain Road into the mountains. And uh, the vision I got and the feeling I got that when I started there is that uh, it's very easy to connect there. And it's also, I had a vision of, you know, what I call an ancient medicine road that, you know, that that Native Americans had followed up into the mountains. Okay, we got a couple uh, minutes
0: to the bottom of the hour. Let me ask you another, you know, intrusive question. Yep. Have you found that certain times are more propitious for connecting than others yeah i usually do
1: my spirit walks in the morning
0: that's when i when i'm I talking about them. day by day by day some days it's the signal's better than other days
1: oh yeah it's like an old style radio well sometimes that's not you... a
0: trivial point bruce come yeah. on
1: <laughs> sometimes you can it's very clear and other times it's a struggle I mean, Bingo! Frankly, ding, 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 It can ding, be ding. a real struggle, so it's not always the same. And you try to—I I mean, I can make a connection sitting here at my desk if I wanted to. But how do I enhance it? How do I make it easier? How do I make it clearer? That's why. I well, go going
0: to back to a guy location. named Shannon, who was a genius at MIT. Remember Shannon information theory mm-hmm. uh, and a thing called bandwidth? Yep. Our work says. That not all days or all hours of a day are created equal, that mm-hmm. there are phasings, there are times when there's resonance, there's times when it's, it's it's basically like old fashioned radio traffic in the days when RCA and Western Union were sending telegrams by radio and they found the ionosphere was absolutely havoc, would wreak havoc on communications yeah. because of sunspots and flares. Yeah. And, and there was a guy in New York who figured out for RCA when it was best to transmit and receive. And mm-hmm. he used what I term hyperdimensional dimensional astrology to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's nice yeah. to know that the, the, the model is, is increasingly confirmed. Hey, hold it there. We yep. are at the bottom of the hour. We got only one more half hour to go. And I've saved the best, I hope, questions for last. You're on the other side of midnight with my friend and guest, and notice I said friend because we're going to be talking a lot in the coming months and maybe more, Bruce Solheim, who is a tenured professor American history, and yet there's this whole other dimension of sight, of sound. We shall return. I mm-hmm. do
4: Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs, $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Listen while you travel, or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 an episode, $0.02 per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
0: And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, Monday morning, November 7th, 8th, here in the Land of Enchantment. My guest this morning is Bruce Solheim, and he's been taking us on a fascinating and kind of deliberate, because I wanted to stick with a kind of a timeline of metonymic this and then that and then that. And now we're up to Trans 2016. His departed friend said, it's time to go public, and he somehow got permission from the board to hold public classes under the auspices of the college. And 35 people, diverse, interested, experienced, show up and define their joint exploration. So Bruce, please continue.
1: Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Richard. You're very kind. Um, Yeah. So these were, these were wonderful people. They were absolutely wonderful people. And I taught the class for, I think it was about a year and a half before, you know, the pandemic wouldn't allow us to be on campus anymore. And I asked the students if they wanted to uh, continue online and they, Voted No, they'd rather be in person, which makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. Uh, So they they're waiting for us to come back on on campus, which hopefully will be next year and I can fire it up again. But uh, yeah, I just I I really I really enjoyed this class. And and uh, and then, of course, when the books came out, then I started uh, speaking like I am to you, you know, on on the radio. And uh, I have to tell you about an experience I had that also relates to my class, but uh, it was um, on another late night show. Uh, I was, uh, after I was on that show, I was contacted by a film uh, producer and he said, uh, yeah, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to uh, fly you out to Chicago and, uh, you know, test your psychic abilities. Now, (laughs) <laughs> the, the lessons are just. I, I'm getting these lessons all the time. So, my
0: when he said test, is he talking Rhine cards, stuff like that?
1: No, he was going to take me. He was going to film me, mic me up, and film me as he took me to different sites that are known, at least to him, ah. to to have you know strange things happening there. So, see, or, you can
0: tune in on why this site yes. is okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. And he wasn't going to give me a, the only clue. He said these would be, you know, these kinds of sites, but he didn't give me any other clues. So he said, I'll, I would like to fly you out there and, and test you and film you because uh, he wanted to do this documentary or this film. He said, I think you might be the person for it. And so I took it as a challenge and say, like, OK, <laughs> I'm
0: really going to show you. Well, you got all this help. Hell, there's yeah. John and Big John. Yeah and Anzar slash by the yep. way do we ever find out what Anzar means it has uh i did some research on it and there is a uh
1: it has meaning in the uh in north africa the rain god you know there's a rain god it's also uh in uh northern iran there is a town called Anzar uh there's also interestingly enough in uh uh one of the missions uh Uh, up in, I think it's not San Juan, uh, Batista, I think that's it, in Central California. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a uh, uh, a Anzar High School there. And the name comes from the missionary who started that, uh, that mission. And he is from the Basque region of Spain, which is kind of an interesting place. In that the people, the Basque people, are the people with the highest percentage of Rh negative blood
0: Indeed. in the world. So there's
1: all these, and they have a
0: language base that doesn't seem to be related yep. to almost anything else.
1: Yeah, it's they're very unique people. I I also have uh, Rh negative. I'm A Okay, so
0: Anzar yep. has has a sense of humor and he loves yep. multi-dimensional puns and yep. very mcluhan esque. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, uh,
1: yeah, now I can't remember where I was going with that. But anyway, uh, oh, the, uh, was I talking about the class? Yes, I was yes. About? Okay. All right. So
0: uh, I uh, – Well, you were all talking about being phoned oh, oh, to Chicago, and I said yeah, you've got uh, this brain trust. It's kind of yeah, unfair because yeah, yeah. if you don't know something, you can call on <clears throat> friends in high places.
1: Yeah, so I thought – I just added, like you said, get out of my
0: way, right? Get out of my yep, own way. yep, yep.
1: So I go to Chicago with this idea. I'm really going to show this guy. I'm I'm going to show this guy. And I said, uh, but I'm not going to go unless I can take my wife, you know, Ginger with me. He said, okay, I'll pay for you both of you to come out, put you up in a hotel, and then I'll take you out to these different sites. I said, okay. And the first day I was there, he took me to a a location that was uh, west of Chicago, kind of in the uh, in the rural area, this old country road with these old buildings. And a, and a graveyard, this old graveyard. So I went there and I started picking up stuff. You know, I went to the graveyard. You mean out and... past
0: the airport? I, uh,
1: I, yeah, I think so. I can't remember
0: the exact. Oh, town here is the little... big airport west of Chicago. Right. Yeah,
1: and it was. I think it was beyond there. We drove quite a ways to get there. Right. Right. And I, but I didn't know the area. You know, and I mean, I had been and to it's Chicago. And flat before. as Kansas. Yes. So this old country road, these old buildings, this old cemetery, and I'm picking up some interesting stuff. And, but it's nothing uh, really earth-shattering, o- other than the fact when I was in the graveyard, I, uh, I was tuning in to everything, and I, I heard uh, a voice. There was nobody else there except me and this the producer guy, uh, and I heard this voice. I, I was complaining about how cold it was because it was like uh, below zero. You know, it, was really, it was January 2019, <laughs> and I, I man this in is,
0: Illinois. It, OK,
1: it's really, really cold. And um, and I heard a voice say, you think you're cold. Try being dead. <laughs> 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 so that was great. What a great line, you know, and it was coming from somebody who, you know, in the graveyard. I don't know who which grave it came from, but I thought it was it was hilarious. Right. So anyway, so well, I, it I also
0: contains on, it, it contains a meta message. Yeah. Because you know why, when when people have these apparitions and the room gets cold and whatever,
3: mm-hmm.
0: there's there's a reason, there's a physics reason for that. Yeah. Here in three dimensions, we have something called entropy. Temperature yeah. is random motion molecular levels. In higher dimensions, it's like superconductivity. It's ordered, therefore the temperature is very low. So when you have these apparitions, there is a there's a gate established between the dimensions and the room in 3d gets colder
1: yeah yeah so it, it makes every bit of sense you know and uh well that that first sight i picked up on some things but it wasn't very i could tell he was disappointed he thought i was going to be it wasn't
0: really above background
1: it, it he he I, he was you know i could tell that i was disappointed you didn't so, knock oh, your man. socks off No, I did not. I did not. He was expecting real high drama and I wasn't giving it to him. So I'm not really a high drama kind of guy. (laughs) But anyway, so I'm trying. I'm really trying. So I thought, okay, I got to open myself up more. I got to be bigger and bolder and, you know, really let it let it out. So he took me. You have to to get rid of the fear. So he took me to the south side of Chicago. Wow. And it was a very bad neighborhood. Yeah. South side of Chicago. And I got out, and I thought, okay, I, I didn't do my usual protection, you know, my protection prayers and all the stuff that I do. I just walked out of the car, boldly stepped forward, and immediately I saw in my mind's eye like a, an old black and white film. And it was, I could see, it was like from the 1890s. I could tell the, the time period, you know, it was the 1890s, and it was the horse and buggies and people in dark clothing. They were, it was really, they were moving very fast and they were ignoring me totally ignoring me but then there was a man in a dark overcoat a bowler hat a one of those curly uh, waxed mustaches with dark eyes staring at me and he was just staring he was paying attention to me nobody else so was. he detected you he detected me yeah and i thought man that guy's kind of creepy you know and then all of a sudden poof it's gone right so i said oh i got to make a connection so i'm opening myself up more so I'm walking into this alleyway in this very depressed neighborhood uh you know in the south side of Chicago, and I go up to a tree because I like to touch things that are old, and I sometimes can feel you know what's been going on there. It's kind of like a record
0: right? and trees are very good h d antennas
1: yes i i I love touching trees they they tell me a lot, so I go up to this tree I'm about to touch this tree I haven't touched it yet. And all of a sudden, I'm driven into the ground. I mean, like, and I'm a big guy. I'm like 6'3", 275. I'm like, you know, a Mm. football size. So it drives me into the ground like I'm nothing and holds me down. And there's nobody there. So it's just an entity that's holding me down in the ground. The worst part of it, other than I, I mean, I hurt my knee and I hurt my toe, my left big toe and my left knee, was that I felt like I was losing my will, you know, that I was ebbing. It was it was it was going away. You were under and attack. I was under psychic and physical attack, both in this dimension. And I could see under the ground. I could see men, women, and children reaching for me. You know, shrieking in in agony, and and they were all being tortured and killed, and it just it was awful. Finally, I was able to pull myself free. And he didn't have the camera on me, but he had the microphone. So I'm narrating what's going on, right? So I, I was able to get up and I hobbled away cause I'm injured and he comes running out of the car with the camera. And uh, he said, I can't get this problem with the camera. He said, but I heard you, he said, uh, what's going, you know, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. He, I want to get out of here. This is horrible. This is absolutely horrible. You, mm. you, I feel like I've been, you know, he didn't tell me that it was going to be this bad, you know? And uh, well, that's what I was thinking at the time.
0: And uh, uh, he Wait, said, you said I, he had a problem with the camera.
1: Yeah, there was a problem with the – he couldn't get it to work. Because so the wasn't. physics
0: was interfering yeah. with the electronics.
1: The, the microphone worked, so he did, he did hear me. But uh, he said, I'm not feeling right either. There's something wrong. He's, I said, well, I, I want to get out of here right now. So we went to the car, packed the stuff up, got in the car, and uh, I said, don't ever bring me to a place like this again. And uh, he said – and I said, besides, what, what, you can tell me now what happened here. And he said this. This was the site of the Murder Hotel that uh, Doctor H. H. Holmes had built uh, for the Chicago World Fair oh in the 1890s. Oh
0: my God!
1: That was the exact site right there in wow. the South Side, of Chicago, and uh, the and I, the people I saw were you know in the dungeon or in those rooms you know being tortured and killed, and I guess up to 300 of them. And from what, what I read about him, and because uh, I did research afterwards. Yeah and uh and so i looked and the first thing that popped up when i got on the internet on the computer and i looked was was a picture of of dr hh holmes and that looked just like the guy the guy with the eyes who saw you yeah yeah that was the guy that was paying attention to me so i guess the the lesson there is that uh i didn't do my usual protection I would have detected more. I would have been more protected. I might not have been physically attacked. I would have been alerted to that. It would, you know, I'd had some warnings, you know, uh, but the, the, you know, I, I don't know exactly what this entity was, whether it was him or it was the entity that possessed him to do the things he mm-hmm. did or some combination, but it is still there. It is still there. And, uh, and he told me as the producer said as we were driving away, he said, Look around this neighborhood, look at all the people. They look like they have a heavy load on them. You know, it's not just that they're poor, they live in a, you know, dangerous neighborhood, but it's just, just something extra in you know, like in the area there that's just keeping these people down. And uh yeah, I mean it was it, it was a, a very interesting experience. Well when I how it ties into my class, I come back, um there was another experience, too, that was kind of negative, not as bad as that. But I come back to teach my class, my paranormal personal history class at Citrus. And uh, I have a couple of psychics in the class. And I'm, I'm talking about Chicago, and I haven't even told the story yet. I'm just there in the classroom starting the class. And one of my students who's a psychic gets up and says, I'm sorry, i got to leave the class. And I said, what's wrong? Said, I'm just feeling ill. Wow. She goes outside and i follow her out i want to make sure she's okay and she says you know hey you're carrying some really dark heavy energy right now and it's making me ill you you got to you got to get some help you got to get rid of that whatever that is that you that happened and then i told the story to the class and they said oh yeah well that makes sense there's some residual you know effects and uh i happened to have a friend who was uh, who was well, a physics yes yeah there are signatures, I, there are, you know. Yep, and it was some kind of an attachment that had glommed onto me. And uh, I had a, a, a guest speaker who was a Peruvian shaman, and I contacted her and I said, hey, uh, I think I need some kind of a uh, cleansing or something from this experience. So I walked in there and I felt very heavy and, you know, didn't feel right. And when I came out after she did the this ritual cleansing, I felt I felt fine. I felt light, you know, lighter and, and, uh, I didn't have that, that energy, that dark energy hanging on me. But, um, so that, that was kind of an, an eye opening. I mean, I've had other, uh, you know, similar kinds of experiences with the, with the dark entity, but nothing quite as that combined the psychic attack and the physical attack. I mean, it was serious, you know, to drive me into the ground like that that hard to injure myself Uh, when
0: you say into the ground we're talking 3d dirt or concrete or ass whatever what do you on onto the concrete sidewalk so you were forced off from standing to what
1: yes kneeling to on my knees and my face down on the the concrete with my arms in front of me i I didn't hit my head but i put my arms in front of me and i'm being held down And until I finally am able to break free. And like like I said, other than the image of those people and, you know, hurting myself, you know, the the horrific image of these people under the ground, like in a dungeon, uh, was that I was losing my willpower, my will to live almost, Hmm. you know, was was draining from me. And I had to really not physically resist, but just let my will come back and let me stand up again. Uh, That that's that's one of the th- the most pronounced things that i that i remember other than the, you know the other details but th- that was uh yeah that was quite an experience and it was very real i mean it was not uh, imaginary and at or... the
0: same time this producer's camera just quote malfunctioned yes right exactly okay that's not coincidence i don't think <laughs> <laughs> no like you said physics right yep <laughs> yep yeah yeah Okay, we've got about 10 minutes, actually, a little mm-hmm. less. Um, obviously, this is going to be a continuing conversation, if I haven't okay. scared you away with dumb, anonymic questions. Um, no, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. Um, Ansar, mm-hmm. leave us with something. Remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. Don't be afraid of the word prediction. Mm-hmm. What has Anzar communicated that will happen in the next, let's say between now and the end of the year? Okay.
1: Uh, Well, something that he's been telling me that is ongoing is what he calls a leap of consciousness. And people are going to resist it, but we are undergoing a leap of, not a leap of faith, but a leap of consciousness. And he said it's tied to what he calls an era of reconversion. And what he means by that is this This next evolutionary step that we're going to take when we combine our science and technology, our incredible science and technology, with the wisdom of ancient people who understood things that we have forgotten, Mm -hmm. or that that a lot of people have forgotten. In
0: previous eras and cycles.
1: Yes. And we're going to combine that into what he calls an era of reconversion. That's the the words that he uses in, in this and this will lead us to take this leap of consciousness to the next evolutionary step, where I think from what I am being told, we will be better connected to all the things that you're talking about, you know, the, the, these hyperdimensional beings, and it'll be much more accepted. But there's a lot of resistance to it, obviously. You think? so?
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're at war. The planet is and, at war and every possible weapon is being used, including turning good people into yep. people you don't recognize because they're missing factors. You know? Yep. There are there are elements, tendrils of control being exerted up and down the spectrum because again, this is a unique moment. We haven't experienced this moment in the physics twenty six thousand years. That's a round number, okay? So mm-hmm. the Zanzar say this is a moment that's coming or is it a window with a knot of moments in the window for choice and decision?
1: Yeah, it's 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 not going to be a single moment. It this is an ongoing process. It's a window. Okay. Yeah, it's a window. That's the way I would describe it. And uh, you know, more specific things well, going back to the uh the the pandemic, he told me a year before it began, he said there'd be a, a series of what did he call them, not cataclysms but uh in, in other words, terrible events. I can now it escapes me the word he used to describe it. Um the events that this would was occur. in
0: December of twenty eighteen?
1: Uh yes. The this, pandemic no, became I,
0: public in December of twenty nineteen. Even right, though it yeah. was earlier, it would public yeah, it knowledge was, was in late December of 2019. Yeah. Oh, he said a series of calamities.
1: That's the word he used. Okay. Calamities. A series of calamities. Yeah. He, he you know, this was in uh, uh, earlier in 2019. He told me this. Now he wasn't specific. He didn't mention a pandemic or anything like that. Uh, and he he did. Uh, and then let's see. In September of 20 September of 2020. So before the election. Slightly September. a year ago. Yeah. So he told me that there will be a pocket revolution. That's what he called it. And then after he, and I asked for more clarity. Foreshadowing on that, he, the, the events of, uh, of January 6th. Mm-hmm. Because then he mentioned insurrection as well. Wow. Now. Now, I know that's a, you know, some people say, OK, insurrections, people say, well, not quite an insurrection, but that is the terminology that is generally, you know, used. And he he said that in September of of, of uh, 2020. Have you written and recorded any of this? Yes. In my, you know, when I have the I keep my journal, you know, my transcription from mm-hmm. every uh, every talk, every not every walk, spirit walk that I take. Right. Right. Uh, Oh, the other thing scientific and this you'll dig this because uh, he one of the first things he told me was uh, to be the light. He told me to be the light. And I, I did some research on that and this idea of how it's connected. You know, what is it? You know, does it mean, you know, scientifically? Yeah, I saw know, that on the cover
0: out. of one of your comics. Be the light. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So here's the interesting thing with the comics is that I take a lot of what I'm learning and I put it into the fictional story of
0: Snark. These are like graphic
1: novels, right? Yeah, yeah. The first one was a comic book. It was shorter. The second one, Snark 2, is a graphic novel, and all the other ones are going to be graphic novels. They'll be longer, at least 72 pages.
0: And they're all available on the other side of Midnight under Bruce's section of Radio with Pictures. So just click on his name under the banner on the guest page, and it'll take you right to what? How many comics and books have you written so far on this?
1: Uh, let's see. I've written the Timeless Trilogy, the Anzar book, and then the two comics.
0: They're all available on
1: uh, Amazon.
0: And you're working on the Dr. Jekyll Alien Hunter, as yeah. you speak. Yeah,
1: it's uh, the artist just sent me a couple more stories today for me to look at. So cool. it, it's a different artist this time. It's a young a young girl. She's only 19. And she is going to be a superstar someday. I mean, she's already incredibly talented. She, she lives in Poland, too, which is very interesting. Oh, wow. And because my artist for SNARK uh, is uh, Gary Dum, and he's been an artist, uh, comic book artist since the 70s. Now, SNARK, mm-hmm.
0: S-N-A-R-C,
1: is that an acronym? Yes. No, it's a, it's a name that came to me when I was in a guard tower working in a prison in Germany. In west germany when i was in the army the first time it was just it came to me this idea of an of this alien guy a hybrid who comes to earth and has adventures you know meeting human beings and having interactions that's that's what i had at first this idea and then when i went to engineering school at 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 montana tech after i get out of the army the first time I uh, was able to do a comic strip, a SNARK comic strip, in the school newspaper, The Technocrat. And that was in 1982. I did five of those comic strips. Mm. And then I dropped out of engineering school and ultimately went back in the Army and went to flight school. But, uh, so SNARK was resurrected,
0: brought back uh, in uh, Well, you know what I'm going to ask next. We only got about three or four minutes left here. It's amazing mm-hmm. how time flies. Yeah, I know. What does it mean? S N A R C.
1: You know, I I don't know, I don't know. It just came to me, and I don't know where you know. I I well, I know where it came from. It came from the same place I'm hearing everything else from. You know, uh, the other the other dimension or one of the other dimensions, and it's. Uh, I don't know exactly what it means. Maybe you, you probably have a scientific explanation for it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but i'm ready to accept one if you got one maybe bef- between yeah. now and the next time you uh come back yeah. um you can ask somebody what it means
1: yeah i there is some technical term that is used in computer science i think or in uh advanced mathematics and it's something to so i'm probably going to i have looked that up and but it, they spell it i think with a with a K. Mm-hmm. but
0: uh i I'll, I'll when go. i was growing up someone who was very flippant and and kind of uh, brassy and and mm-hmm. disrespectful was sn- uh, snarky being snarky yeah yeah exactly <laughs> that's
1: exactly right i can tell you this ginger has great insights she says you know what you're snark <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was hilarious
0: irreverent is is another <laughs> term you know yeah yeah <laughs> a, kind of a revolutionary pushing against the Against the river, against the stream. Yeah. So. Well, you know, the, the whole premise of Snark is that he's this
1: alien hybrid. He's sent to uh, Earth to help prepare us for in, uh, invasion and, uh, and colonization. And then when he gets here, he decides he likes us because he is part human. So he decides he's going to try to protect us. And then he.
0: Oh well, course. sci-fi just had a show. I think it, it went away yeah. called Resident Alien, which has a very similar plotline. Ah. Okay, I haven't seen it. I've I've taped them. I haven't watched uh yeah. anything past the two. There's only so many hours in a day and you have to make choices. Hey, you know we're we're basically <clears throat> out of time. Oh no. Speaking okay. of being in a timeless realm, we have time in this yeah. dimension. So, sure <laughs> um I guess we're going to just have to invite you back and we'll pick I, up I the story there. So, yeah, there's a few things you should ask your friends upstairs. Specifically, like what does SNARK mean mm-hmm. and specific data points on this in this window, because, you know, Bill Nelson, head of NASA, admitting essence, in essence, you know, in a very, you know, that that really is kind of uh telling us where we are.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the next few months, I think, are going to be very dispositive when it comes to what happens how much people learn, and my vision, which is that this unites us. It's probably the only thing that can at this point. I think, I'm hoping, I'm praying that model is fulfilled. Yeah. I, I, I'm i
1: optimistic about our future, but I'm also realistic. There's just going to be some rough road
0: before we get there. Well, as Uhura said to Scott one night, it's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank Bruce Solheim for a fascinating evening. He will be back. Uh, Next weekend is kind of up in the air. We're going to redo Saturday. I lost the Internet last night, so we're going to redo Saturday and talk about some amazing things that are happening in the solar system. Sunday, well, that's a surprise. So until next week, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.